With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. <laughs> yeah, B. Talk your shit. <laughs> how you gonna upgrade me? It's higher than number one. You know I used to beat that block. Now I bees the block. <laughs> Folks, uh, Beyonce's Super Bowl performance, uh, of course, uh, had many of her supporters saying, my goodness, where'd it go be? Uh, she, of course, uh, had her dancers uh, dressed as uh, Black Panthers, if you will, as, as paying homage to the women who served in uh, the Black Panther group. But guess what? That's ticked off lots of people. Rudy Giuliani was upset, saying it was a slap in the face uh, to police. But now what I find to be interesting is white feminists are upset. So I was on Twitter yesterday, last night, folks, uh, and I'm looking at all these different reactions. Uh, and there was uh, one singer, uh, a white singer, Erica Kane, who's an R&B singer. I don't know who the hell she is. Uh, and so she was blasting, she was blasting uh, Beyonce, uh, saying that, that it wasn't including all women. And black women were going, can we please have something to ourselves? Exactly. It's, you, this argument has been going on forever. I, you know, I, and it made me think back to uh, 2008 when, uh, the pre- when President Obama was first elected. Um, sp- uh, we did an event over at Howard University that Spike Lee put on. And one of the things we talked about was black women and feminists. Because there has always, since the days of Betty Friedan, many black women would say to you, like, the fem- your feminist movement does not include us. We've always had to work. Whether to stay home or work outside of the home after you have a child. 
a lot of those questions were questions that apply to white women and had nothing to do with our lives. And uh, so I wasn't surprised by any of the complaints. It's just sad. There should be enough room for any woman to be whatever type of feminist she wants, even if that means performing at the Super Bowl and paying tribute to the women of the Black Panthers. Not all white women need to be included. Yeah, I think a deep breath is called for here when it's yes. when it comes to Beyonce. Look, she's so glamorous and so popular to so many people in our society that everybody wants, wants to be her to identify with them. Yes. And and I think that's a that's that's good, but people have to realize that every performance, every statement she makes, every artistic vision she has is not going to perfectly tailor to every part of her constituency. Yes. It's like people it's similar to people complaining about that her performance was too militant. Yes. Well, they're overlooking the fact that 11 years ago at the Super Bowl, she sang the national anthem. Mm -hmm. You know, so there are many sides to Beyonce, and and I think people on Twitter, her fans, people in the world, the 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 the, the Beyonce queendom has to, you know, let's chill out. But see, the, but, down, but, but the problem, but this is the problem that I have. The problem that I have is these same white feminists didn't say a damn thing over the weekend when Gloria Steinem who was supposed to be the uber feminist, mm. said on Bill Maher's show that uh, the young women who were backing Bernie Sanders were only there because the young boys were there. Mm -hmm. Now, if there's something that's stupid and sexist, is that kind of comment. Now, she had to apologize the next day, but I didn't see these same white feminists saying, hey, what the hell's wrong with you, Gloria Steinem? But they're upset because Beyonce chose to have all black dancers. She was paying homage to the Black Panther, uh, women in the Black Panther Party. I'm sorry if a bunch of white women were not in the Black Panther Party, blame it on them. Well, you know, it, and it goes back to there was a time when people, when uh, 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 Condoleezza Rice was Secretary of State, and um, I don't recall who it was, but one of the cartoonists uh, at the Washington Post uh, drew a cartoon with Condoleezza Rice and uh, referred to her as brown sugar. A lot of black women were up in arms. It was one of the Rolling Stones song, and if you go, go songs, and if you go through the the, trip, the uh, lyrics, you knew what, uh, right. the, what the author was talking about, and they're black Black women all over the country were so angry, and we started saying, where is the National Organization for Women when it applies to a black woman or when it applies to a black conservative woman? And we started saying the National Organization for, for Some Women was probably a better name for the organization. Here's, here's what Erica Kane said. Sorry, Bay, I won't be getting information. A true feminist unites, not divides, and chooses to empower, not flaunt their power. Uh, isn't that the whole point, the Launch your power. Exactly. I mean, my, my issue is just that black women are afforded, you know, multi-dimensionality. We're always put in one box. I mean, Beyonce is supported Black Lives Matter. She's supporting the Flint, Michigan water crisis. I mean, she's done a lot, and I think that she should be able to have this moment. Well, and this is, you know, if you tie it back to politics, this is part, probably part of the problem that Hillary Clinton is having within her campaign, how women today, whether they are black or white, uh, regardless of their age, define feminism. Uh, Beyonce is a young black woman and this is her definition of feminism and it is as it pertains to Hillary Clinton it is part of the reason why you see this huge age divide because a lot of women like Beyonce I would imagine I'm not going to put words into her mouth but young women feel that uh, that the old definitions of feminism are for their grandmothers and their mothers and it doesn't apply to them and they're going to live their life the way they choose and Beyonce is going to do her art but here's what I find, be, how I find to be really interesting okay Rudy Giuliani runs to Fox and Friends, complains that, oh, this is a slap in the face to cops. Yet, Rudy Giuliani didn't say jack about the black cop in New York mm -hmm. who was beaten by 12 other New York police officers 
when his wife called the cops and said there was a disturbance outside their home. Cops got there, thought the brother who lived there, he was at fault, beat him, and he was screaming, I'm a cop, I'm a cop, was awarded $15 million. See, and then, of course, you had that idiot sheriff out of Milwaukee County, David Clark, who says that, well, how will black people feel if the, if the cake, if some, a band came out that dressed like the KKK? And I had to remind people. The Black Panthers We're not started, right. first of all, the initial Black Panther Party was a political party in Lowndes County, Alabama, because yeah. white folks wouldn't let black folks on the ballot. Mm -hmm. But the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense started to combat police brutality. Mm -hmm. It started to combat police brutality. And even <laughs> if someone has a critique of the Black Panther Party, which is fine, yes. to compare them to the KKK, A, is ludicrous, and B, pointing out the double standard that you're talking about, Roland, uh, 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 Mayor Giuliani also didn't point out, that he didn't come on Fox and Friends talking about the Oregon militia folks were also in armed confrontation to the police. Mm -hmm. Right, if you're against armed confrontation to the police, be against it For across everyone. the board. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, so, and, but, and, but see, and I love this, uh, see, this trust me on. So even in the debate Saturday, okay, when Donald Trump uh, was asked, you know, really about uh, you know, police brutality, he goes on, oh, uh, the cops are the most mistreated people in the country. No, if you want to get off for killing somebody, yes. be a cop. Be a cop. If you want to ensure that you can keep your job after killing somebody, be a cop. And so you have this whole deal that says, oh, no, no, no. We can't criticize cops in America. They're so righteous. They're so wonderful. Yet these folks are totally silent when you have the, the, the sort of corruption in Chicago right now right. With, La, with, with Laquan McDonald, the breaking of radios, the dash cam videos, the falsifying of records, the covering up uh, of different stories, flat out lying. And then when you read the police report and you see the video, Two totally different things. I mean, but, as a conservative, I think, I mean, this is ludicrous. I mean, taxpayers are on the hook for tens of millions of dollars. Fifteen million in New York. Right. But fiscal conservatives say nothing. Look, the most mistreated people in the United States of America are black boys and black men. And time and time again. Also black girls. Seen, where well, going. black girls also. But, but, but as a mother, I will tell you, I am more worried about someone gunning down my son than my daughter. And, you know, we have talked about this over and over and over again, and there is Giuliani, whether it's on Fox and Friends or Meet the Press, talking about the fact that if it wasn't for the crimes that your people commit in your neighborhoods, and I'm paraphrasing here, cops wouldn't have to be there. He should be, it's outrageous, and actually, I don't, Fox and Friends shouldn't even have had him on the air. If you're going to be pro-life, if you're going to be pro-cop, if you're going to be pro-anything, it has to be for all well, of humankind. Know, now, now, you know that, that ain't the case, because as even uh, Chris Christie said in Saturday's debate, he said, I'm pro-life outside of the womb. Mm -hmm. You see, nobody else jumped in. Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. saying. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me, and I swear to God you'll lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we're still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we're still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we're still singing for St. Louis. We're going to talk now with the mayor of Ferguson, Missouri. The U.S. Department of Justice slapped his city with a civil rights lawsuit this week. When Attorney General Loretta Lynch announced the suit on Wednesday, she said the city targeted black people in traffic stops, use of force, and jail sentences. These violations were not only egregious, they were routine. They were encouraged by the city in the interest of raising revenue. They were driven, at least in part, by racial bias, and they occurred disproportionately against African-American residents of Ferguson. And they were profoundly and fundamentally unconstitutional. 
Of course, Ferguson is the city where a police officer shot and killed Michael Brown in 2014. That sparked a Justice Department investigation, which led to a settlement agreement. The city council unanimously decided to change the terms of that agreement, and the Justice Department responded with this lawsuit. Ferguson Mayor James Knowles, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You and your team sat at the negotiating table with the Justice Department for seven months to work out the settlement agreement. If there were things you wanted to change, why not bring it up in the negotiations rather than make the changes unilaterally after you agreed to the deal? Trust me, we we brought many, many issues to the table during these negotiations, not least of which was the issue of cost and how much it would take for the city of Ferguson to comply with all of these points that were contained in the report. By the time our staff had a comprehensive cost analysis done on this, we did not have an opportunity to go back and have a negotiation with the Department of Justice. They did not want to have further negotiation. They wanted us to either accept it or decline it. But Mayor Knowles, anyone who's been in a negotiation knows once you reach an agreement, particularly after seven but there was months no of agreement. talks. Let me be very clear about this. There was no agreement. The only agreement was that we would take it before the people, that we would take it before the entire council for consideration. Now, the Department of Justice asked us, to sign an agreement before we took it public, and we refused. You say that money is the problem, but as we heard from the attorney general, money is part of what drove the police force to engage in some of these abusive practices in the first place. She says they were encouraged by the city in the interest of raising revenue. Don't you risk falling back into the same patterns here? Well, if she forces us to raise our expenses, I mean, that would force us to go find new revenue. The point is our revenues have fallen. Obviously, we don't pull over people at the rate we used to pull people over. We don't issue tickets like we used to issue tickets. Property values have fallen. Revenues from sales tax has fallen. So she's complaining that we about the way we used to generate revenue, which we don't anymore, but now wants to tack on a, a huge amount of expenses to us. I mean, that's completely counterproductive. You say we don't pull over or issue tickets like we used to as though that is a sacrifice. But the way you used to pull people over and issue tickets was a blatant infringement of constitutional rights. That is what the Department of Justice alleges. Do you disagree with it? Has it happened in the past? It may have. Uh, You're not even willing to say it certainly has, just it may have. I've not been presented the case from the Department of Justice, nor have we been able to identify specific instances in which this has occurred. You know, what I get from this conversation is that even after seven months of intense talks with the U.S. Department of Justice and the city of Ferguson, these two parties perceive completely different realities. I don't know if that that would be a proper characterization of this because everything that started in April of 2014, the city of Ferguson began looking at both its court practices and its police practices immediately. We began changing things in our courts, which we felt were onerous which were probably burdensome on people who are going through our court system. We started removing fines and fees from our court systems in September of 2014. That's long before the March 2015 report from the Department of Justice. We also began changing the way we do things in our police department once these things came to light. I think it's very important to recognize that the city of Ferguson has taken an affirmative approach to 
ensuring that those things which the Department of Justice alleges does not occur in Ferguson going forward. But ultimately, I think the Justice Department is accusing you of putting a dollar amount on fundamental constitutional rights, that if it's too expensive, you won't provide those basic rights guaranteed in the Constitution. Look, the amendments that we proposed says that we're going to have African-American hiring goals on our vendors. I don't think that has anything to do with constitutional policing. That was one of one seven of, amendments. Well, and, and I'm going through them for you. So, I mean, we have that one. We don't believe the Department of Justice should tell us how much we have to pay our city staff. That seems like a very good argument to make in negotiations with the Department of Justice. And the issue was raised in the negotiations with the Department of Justice. But ultimately, I mean, it's something that they refuse to relent on. Is it possible that having rejected this agreement and now being hit with the lawsuit, it will ultimately cost the city more in the long run than it would have if you had just agreed to the terms of the deal worked out over seven months? Uh, No, actually, we believe that the court costs associated with fighting this would actually be significantly less than complying with the terms of the agreement as they present it to us. And so is your plan now to simply fight this lawsuit and hope for the best? Our plan is to continue to move forward with all of these reforms, which we, by the way, have started again long before the conversation started with the Department of Justice. We already have body cameras on all of our officers as per the agreement. We already have a civilian review board being implemented in our city. There's a tremendous amount of oversight and training, which we have already agreed to, which we've already begun the implementation of. All of these things you will see that ensure constitutional policing in the city of Ferguson. We are just not going to provide these significant raises for our officers. James Knowles is the mayor of Ferguson, Missouri. Mayor Knowles, thanks for talking with us. Thank you. And we asked the Department of Justice about the mayor's statement that justice did not want to wait for the city's cost analysis. The DOJ shared a letter it sent to the mayor and city council, which says in part, as has long been established under law, constitutional protection cannot be denied on the grounds of cost. Mama says police misshoot black people. Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that true? Is it true? A day after the city filed a claim against the estate of Timur Rice for ambulance costs, Mayor Frank Jackson says the bill will be withdrawn. I'm trying not to be disrespectful to the family. I'm trying not to, uh, even though we've done another stumble that has caused them harm, I'm trying to rectify that in the best way I can. The mayor, as well as other city officials, held a press conference Thursday to address why the $500 claim for the 12-year-old was filed in the first place. Officials said the bill had been automatically generated after a request was submitted by the administrator of the estate asking the city for the billing statement. Again, um, apologizing to uh, the Rice family if, in fact, this is added to any grief or pain that they may have. The mayor said the bill had not been sent to Rice's family. He explained the city absorbed the amount of medical bills not covered by Medicaid. Now, since um, we're at this point, as as Rick has said, uh, that account is going to be uh, closed again, and we're withdrawing that claim. Tamir Rice was shot by a Cleveland police officer November 22, 2014. The officer thought the gun Rice was handling was real. It was an airsoft pistol that police say 
looked real. But the fact a claim was filed has drawn criticism from the attorneys for the Rice family. They released the following statement. The suggestion that the estate administrator sending a routine public records request to the city about a child's death would then result in the city filing a court claim, particularly when the city's own police officers killed the child and the claim is already time-barred under Ohio law, makes no sense to the Rice family. This was a deeply disturbing incident to them. And the president of the Cleveland Police Union, Steve Loomis, also critical of the city's actions. Everything about this is is wrong, you know, and and the men and women in the police department are about right and wrong. You know, we do the best that we can do to make the decisions, good decisions for the right reasons. Obviously, the leadership of the city does not do that. I see. And are any of these homeless people of a minority persuasion? Why does that matter? Oh, it matters. See, it used to be we could beat up minorities and nobody cared. It's the reason a lot of us joined the force. Hey, Mitch, you want to go down and arrest some homeless people but not be able to beat up any minorities? No, thank you. Yeah, no, I think we're good. A JSO lieutenant is resigning from her position on the Board of Fraternal Order of Police in the midst of an investigation into whether she posted racist material on her social media account. Action News Jax was first to break the story about the investigation into Lieutenant Trudy Callahan's Instagram post. Action News Jax, Sam Matha Manning is live in Inglewood at the FOP Lodge. And Sam, Callahan stepped down at the request of the FOP president. Tanika, the president of the FOP, says he has received inquiries about Lieutenant Callahan's Instagram posts over the last few weeks. He says he believes her resignation was in the best interest of the organization and its members. Lieutenant Trudy Callahan is under investigation for these Instagram posts on her personal page. We blurred out some of the posts because of the N-word. One picture she posted shows a black man standing in a drive through line at an ATM. It includes a comment saying, quote, when you need money to get gas for the car, you can't drive up to the ATM. Another picture shows a black man lying on a broken fence. The comment from Lieutenant Callahan's account reads, quote, yeah, it's almost Friday, so get your hood hammock ready to chillax. FOP Lodge 530 President Steve Zona wrote in a memo that Lieutenant Callahan served on the board of directors since 2013 and recently won re-election for her position. He thanked Callahan for her service and said she will continue to be a dues-paying member of the FOP. They are now looking for her replacement on the board of directors. An Action News Jack's investigation also found pages worth of complaints against Lieutenant Callahan dating back to 1996 when she first started with JSO. They included harassment, unnecessary force, conduct unbecoming, and sleeping on the job. She has previously been suspended three times. Lieutenant Callahan is still on the job with JSO. The agency is still investigating the complaints against her. Reporting live in Englewood on the south side, Samantha Manning, CBS 47, Action News Jax. I want to be a cop. Fairborn police put one of its officers on administrative leave. He is accused of posting an inappropriate Facebook comment about Black Lives Matter organizer Marshawn McCarroll, who committed suicide this week. News Center 7's Malik Perkins spoke to the police chief to learn how he's dealing with it. The comment was posted under a link to a story reporting McCarroll's death. It read, quote, love a happy ending. Fairborn police were sent this screenshot of what appears to be Officer Lee Sears' Facebook page. Chief Terry Barlow said they took action immediately. We made aware, basically, of a social media post that was linked to a Fairborn police officer. Um, at that time, an internal affairs complaint was initiated. Officer Sear was off-duty when the post was made, but Chief Barlow says if the investigation proves Sear wrote the comment, 
It violates the department's social media policy. Issues such as this that, uh, that may bring discredit on the department, again, we're going to be investigating, but that may bring discredit on the department is against policy. I met with Wright State senior Tracina Allen, who worked with McCarroll in the Black Lives Matter movement. She said she would be offended if the investigation shows Sear wrote the post. That's definitely unacceptable for someone um, who, again, is supposed to protect and serve people um, to have that type of comment and reaction towards someone who is dead. Chief Barlow said the alleged post does not represent their department as a whole. We take these issues seriously and, and we'll ensure that the professional standards of the department are upheld. We've attempted to contact Officer Sear, but we have not been able to connect with him yet. And Fairborn police say the post is still under investigation. Reporting in Fairborn, Malik Perkins. For cop, as good as I, a book of guy, but drinking crooked eye. Don't resist a little pie, you think I won't, but why wouldn't I? I'm a cop. Soleimani Perry, an African-American Princeton professor, was pulled over on Saturday morning at 9.30 a.m. for driving 67 miles per hour in a 45-mile-per-hour zone. After a routine check of Perry's license, two officers, one male and one female, found out that her license had been suspended and that a warrant had been issued for two unpaid parking tickets from back in 2013. Perry was then searched, handcuffed, and taken to the police station in Princeton in the back of a squad car, where she was then handcuffed to a desk in the police station. She ended up paying her fines, which were totaled the $130 from reports, and she was released. Now, Ms. Perry has declined to speak with the media. I've reached out to her myself, but that does not mean that she didn't want to bring her feelings to the public. The next day, she took to Twitter and Facebook with her account of what happened. The first tweet came on Sunday morning. I was arrested in Princeton Township for a single parking ticket three years ago. So she said one, they said two. Then she reeled off a series of tweets, voicing her frustration over being arrested and how it was handled, including citing racism and anger over police tactics. There was a male and female officer, but the male officer did the body search before cuffing me and putting me in the squad car. Also, I don't consider a strange man's hands on my waist and inner thighs non-invasive. Now, she really delved into the issue in a 1,200-word Facebook post, uh, especially in regards to racism. She states oh some God, of the following. Really? The police treated me inappropriately and disproportionately. The fact of my blackness is not incidental to this matter. I hope that this circle of attention will be part of a deeper reckoning with how and why police officers behave the way they do, especially towards those of us whose flesh is dark. You can read the full post by clicking on our Facebook page. Now, I did make contact with the Princeton Police Department, and they were nice enough uh, to answer some of my questions. I asked them what was her demeanor during the arrest. They said that she was polite and cooperative. I specifically asked them uh, about the certain tweet about the uh, invasive touching of her inner thighs and said, you know, was there anything inappropriate? He answered that. At this point, we have no reason to believe that the search was improper. Sometimes there's a male cop who's driving alone. So if he's got to do an arrest, if he's got to make an arrest, he's going to pat the suspect down whether they're male or female. The chief addressed right? that. There's eight female officers in Princeton Police. So he said whenever we can, if there's a female present, she can do it or she can uh, watch, but that's not always the case and that's not against protocol, but they're going to look at it. So Ashley, you um, you got a ticket the other day. I did. In I, Princeton. I had all my gear. I was ready to chase. And I forgot my purse, which has my wallet, which has my license. So I'm doing 42 and a 35, and I couldn't see a speed limit sign for a long time. And then all of a sudden, I noticed the cop was behind me. And finally, I see 35 miles per hour, and I slow it down. It took her a while to actually put her lights on. I will say, because of the race issue, I was scared. 
and I just cooperated. I would say her tone itself was as if she wanted to see if I would add more fuel to the fire. And so she looks me up, saw that it was good. Uh, but the other element was I didn't have my registration because right. I'm driving my dad's car. Right? car. Yeah. And so it was a double whammy. She ended up giving me a can't recognize your license plate little thing. And um, So she cut you a break. She cut me a break. If you're driving without a license, she could have thrown you in jail for up to a year. So she really cut you some slack there. I've actually uh, requested the video of the dash cam so we can actually see uh, when I get that if there was any kind of uh, foul play or any inappropriate touching uh, that she uh, mentioned at all. But the police uh, department themselves said that this was routine. 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 When you're a cop, you can torment freely and see me valley, then seize the Audi, then beam proudly, turn a routine traffic stop to your season finale when you're a cop. Uh, what in the world's going on with Daniel Hostlaw, the disgraced rapist former Oklahoma City police officer who was convicted of raping black women in Oklahoma? Now the problem is no one seems to want to admit where he is. His name? His photo, uh, his location in the prison system, totally removed from the prison database. That took place, of course, uh, after he was convicted last month uh, for 18 charges of rape and sexual battery. He was sentenced to 263 years in prison. Joining us right now is attorney Demario Solomon Simmons, who represents several of Host Claw's victims in a civil suit. He joins us from Tulsa, Oklahoma, via Skype. Uh, Demario... What I understand is this is a prison system still trying to protect a rapist cop, former cop. Exactly, Roland. Good morning. Thank you for having me on the show this morning. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, for obvious reasons, a police officer is going to be in some type of protective custody. Um, but there is no justification that we've heard so far of why his information is completely erased from the Department of Corrections website. And our clients are feeling anxious and they just want to know for a fact that he's behind bars and he can never uh, attack them again. And and what reason are they giving why they can't lo seem to uh, note where he's located? Well, at this time, Roland, we have not heard a, 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 a credible reason of why all of his information has been taken off the website. We have another uh, Oklahoma City police officer who's actually in prison now for the wrongful shooting of a young man uh, a couple years ago, and his information is still on the website. But they have not cited any statutory language or any law or any regulation that allows them to completely erase uh, Daniel Hostclaw from the prison system's website. So we don't know exactly why that is and what authority they are utilizing to be able to take him off the website. And also we're concerned that, our again, our victims want to make sure they know where he is, that he is locked up, and then if he was somehow to get out, that they would be notified immediately. So they haven't notified any of the victims, and they continue to insist that, well, it's for his safety. He is a rapist. Yeah, I understand. And, and I don't know if they notify. Our clients, I can say for sure, uh, were not notified. I don't know about the young other women that may not be represented uh, by us. And for his safety, again, we understand, Roland. We're not, everybody understands he's a police officer, and being in prison would be a terrible place for him to be, and people know where he is. But that is a separate issue versus being public, his public information, his mugshot, and that information on the website. It appears that, once again, Daniel Hostclaw is getting special treatment as he received throughout 
uh, this entire time that he was under investigation, left out on the street when the Oklahoma City Police Department had credible complaints about his activities and sexual assaults that he was having. And even throughout the trial, it seemed that he received special treatment that was not afforded to other individuals who are accused of such heinous crimes. All right, Demario, we surely appreciate it, man. Thank you so very much for joining us. All right, thank you. I want to be a cop. NYPD officer Peter Leung is facing up to 15 years in prison after a Brooklyn jury found him guilty of manslaughter for killing 28-year-old Akai Gurley. Leung was on patrol in a housing project stairwell in East New York when he fired his gun, striking the unarmed girly. WNYC's Robert Lewis was at Brooklyn Supreme Court when the verdict was handed down. After a second full day of deliberations, the jury in the manslaughter trial of NYPD officer Peter Leung sent out a note at 6.40 p.m., around the time they were supposed to break for a long holiday weekend. Instead, it said they'd reached a verdict. The judge had them come in with a packed court of Gurley's family, police union representatives, Liang supporters and media. The clerk read the charges. As to count one, charging the defendant, Peter Liang, with the crime of manslaughter in the second degree, what is your verdict? Guilty. Liang buried his face in his hands. Outside the courthouse, defense attorney Robert Brown called the shooting a terrible accident. We don't believe that the verdict was supported by the facts or the law. We plan on moving post-verdict in order to dismiss. And if that fails, we plan to appeal. But nearby, Gurley's family rejoiced. His aunt, Hortensia Peterson, attended the trial daily. She thanked District Attorney Ken Thompson. When he said he is going to work for you and he knows Mm -hmm. the citizen of the borough that he lives in, he's a man of his word. Because today we just saw a verdict that has not come down in how long. The shooting came just months after the deaths of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and Eric Garner on Staten Island, both unarmed black men killed by police, prompting protests nightly in New York and across the country. But only a day after Gurley's death, NYPD Commissioner William Bratton spoke out and called it a tragic accident. The deceased uh, uh, is, a uh, based on our preliminary investigation, total innocent. At the time, Gurley's mother, Sylvia Palmer, pleaded for Leong to be held accountable. My son was my life. There's nothing in this world can heal my pain and my heartache. And I pray to God that I get justice for my son because my son didn't deserve to die like that. Grand juries refused to indict officers for the deaths of Brown or Garner. But in Brooklyn, first-term district attorney Ken Thompson aggressively investigated Gurley's death. In February, he got an indictment against Liang for six counts, including manslaughter and official misconduct. I made a promise that we would conduct a fair and thorough investigation into his death. And that's exactly what we did. When the trial started late last month, defense attorney Ray Koshetz told jurors during opening statements that there's nothing reckless about an officer unholstering their gun when doing floor checks in a housing project. He has his gun out because he's on his way to the roof, the most dangerous place in a dangerous place. And there is no rule saying that a police officer cannot have his gun out. The defense said Liang was entering the darkened stairwell on the eighth floor when he heard a sudden noise to his left and tensed up. Suddenly, the gun accidentally discharges. He is beside himself in a state of shock. 
and things are about to become much, much worse. Koshetz called it a million-to-one shot that bounced off the wall and struck Gurley a floor below, and she defended Liang for not trying to help Gurley's girlfriend with chest compressions. But prosecutors played jurors an emotional 911 call a neighbor made that night. Ma'am, you said the cops are there? He's not breathing. He's, he's not breathing. All right, his girlfriend, is she willing to do CPR? During more than two weeks of witness testimony, prosecutors focused intensely on the firearm safety and other training officers receive. Assistant District Attorney Joseph Alexis. If Peter Leanne can get away with recklessly pulling the trigger of his gun and shooting and killing an innocent and unarmed man in the stairwell while serving as a New York City police officer. We should just close the police cabinet. In his closing arguments, Alexis ridiculed the defense notion that the gun just went off. The guns don't just fire. Peter Liang pulled the trigger. He pulled this trigger. And he urged the jury to hold Liang accountable. Evidently, they listened. The jury found Liang guilty of the top charge of manslaughter as well as official misconduct. Standing on the street outside the courthouse in the blistering cold, District Attorney Ken Thompson said despite the verdict, Brooklyn stands by its police officers. But when innocent men are shot and killed through an act of recklessness, we have to hold whoever is responsible accountable, whether that is a police officer or not. Immediately after the verdict, an NYPD spokesman announced that Officer Liang has been fired. The police union denounced the conviction. PBA President Patrick Lynch said it would have a chilling effect on policing. Liang's sentencing is scheduled for April 14th. For WNYC, I'm Robert Lewis. But okay, now it's on to South Carolina. That's the next primary. If Iowa and New Hampshire are the Oscars, uh, this is now the BET Awards. That's, that's how we do it in America. First the white people vote, then the black people vote. Uh, Bernie not doing well, I have to say, with the black voters there in South Carolina, which I don't get. The only alternative is a, a white woman with a big ass. Okay, I get it. I... We are joined by ta Coates, the national correspondent for The Atlantic, where he writes about culture, politics, and social issues. He's the author of <clears throat> Between the World and Me, which is a finalist for the National Books Critics Circle Award. He won the 2014 George Polk Award for his Atlantic cover story, The Case for Reparations. It's great to have you back, ta nehisi And congratulations on this new nomination of the National Book Critics Circle Award. Thank you. <laughs> okay. But before we go to the issue of reparations, mm. you your response to what just took place in New Hampshire. Uh, again, the first two contests, because Iowa's a caucus, New Hampshire's a primary, in two of the whitest states in the country. Well, I don't know that I have anything uh, particularly more intelligent to add. I think, every, like everybody else, um, I'm stunned, <laughs> uh, you know? I mean, I, I guess after the What are the you best. stunned by? Well, I think had you told me this, like, a year ago, I certainly would not have expected, you know, an avowed socialist to, you know, be putting up these sorts of numbers and actually be contending for the Democratic Party nomination. Um, but I think it's awesome. You know, I, I think it's great. You know, like a lot of people, I'm very, very concerned about Senator Clinton's uh, record. I'm very, very concerned about uh, where her positions were in the 1990s uh, when we had some of the most um, disgusting uh, legislation in terms of our criminal justice, uh, in, really in this country's history. Uh, I get really, really concerned when I see somebody taking $600,000 in speaking fees uh, for Goldman Sachs will not release what they're actually saying. Uh, that's concerning. And so having options... Uh, not having this be a coordination, uh, I think is a good thing. So um, I'm stunned, but I'm pleasantly stunned. Mm. 
So talk about your critique of Bernie Sanders and um, his opposition to reparations, but saying the money has to be put into black and brown communities uh, in terms of jobs and and we've got to fight uh, economic inequality. Well, the first thing is, obviously, I'm in favor of fighting economic inequality. The second part of his answer, which you just played, I, you know, I, I completely support. But I think one thing that we have to understand is, you know, and, I, and I'll put this in two parts. First of all, the injuries uh, that African-Americans experience are not just the injuries of class. It's not just a matter of being impoverished. We had particular policies in this country that resulted in the larger share of poverty that we have in African-American communities. At the same time, the issue of class does not break down the same way in African-American communities as it breaks down in other communities. You can't make a, di a direct comparison between middle-class African-Americans and, mid and middle-class white Americans, affluent African-Americans and affluent white Americans. The amount of wealth tends to be less. The neighborhoods that black people tend to live in tend to be of lesser quality. The uh, institutions and the services that black folks receive from the government tend to be of lesser quality. And so the notion that you can have an all, you know, an all encompassing policy, universal policy, to really address what is actually a very, very specific injury, I think is wrong. I think, secondly, uh, folks need to be aware of the history of how racism actually injures universalist policy. Every time we've had to, you know, uh, put forth uh, universalist socialist pol social policy in this country, at every moment we've had to contend with the fact that there is you know, uh, a relatively large amount, uh, relatively large population of Americans in this country that are concerned about black people being included in those policies, too. That was true in the New Deal. It was true in Obamacare. And it likely would be true with President Sanders also. W.E.B. Du Bois, the problem of the 20th century is the color. It remains with us. It's very sad, but it, it remains with us. And so thinking that we will get away from it by changing the subject or talking in a different way, I, I just don't think it'll work. I want to go back to 2008. CNN correspondent Suzanne Malvo asking then-Senator Barack Obama about his view on reparations. When it comes to reparations, would you take it a step further in terms of apologizing for slavery or offering reparations to various groups? You know, I have said uh, in the past, and I'll, I'll repeat again, uh, that the best reparations we uh, can provide are good schools in the inner city and jobs for people who are unemployed. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that uh, strategies that invest in lifting people out of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow, uh, but that have broad applicability and, and allow us to build coalitions to actually get these things done, that, I think, is the best strategy. Uh, you know, the fact is, is that dealing with some of the uh, some of the legacy of, of, of discrimination is going to cost billions of dollars. Uh, and uh, we're not going to be able to have that kind of uh, resource allocation unless all Americans feel that they are invested in making this stuff happen. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm much more interested in talking about how do we get every child to learn? How do we get every person health care? How do we make sure that everybody has a job? How do we make sure that every senior citizen can retire with dignity and respect? Damn you, Obama. Now it's President Obama. Well, actually, Senator Obama in 2008. Your response, Donahassi. It just always makes me sad to see that. I, I really want to believe him. I really, really want to believe uh, Senator Sanders. But the fact that the matter is in America, you know, throughout American history, it's been very difficult to deliver on those promises that he said at the end. Every person a job, every person a quality education, every person quality health care. 
while avoiding the issue of white supremacy. I, I, I just don't know how you deal with that. We just went through an era during the housing crisis. And when I say housing crisis, it sounds like it hit everybody in the same way. It didn't. We had, you know, mortgage companies in this country that deliberately targeted middle-class African-American neighborhoods and deliberately gave them uh, uh, predatory loans, despite the fact, even when you look at, you know, the conditions of, of the folks who were uh, borrowing money, they looked on paper just like other white families. They were targeted because they were black communities. How we get past this without talk, I, I just I just don't know. So you write this remarkable piece um, for The Atlantic, the case for reparations. You originally were not for reparations yourself. I was not. I believed what he just said. So <laughs> what changed you? Well, um, one of the great luxuries of my job at The Atlantic is, uh, you know, I'm encouraged to read and research. And there is uh, a great deal of research, for instance, on New Deal legislation, which, you know, we're, we're sort of repeating ourselves right now. There's a great deal of research on neighborhood poverty out there in the, in the academy. And there's a really, really, you know, budding field of, you know, I would say reinterpretation of the legacy of slavery, which shows exactly how much wealth was extracted out of the community. And once I began to see white supremacy and anti-black racism as a specific thing, not just something, you know, not just a matter of black people being accidentally poor, um, but a specific trend in American history that's with us up, up until today, it became very difficult to hold on to a universalist solution. I want to turn to a clip from an episode of Behind the News on KPFA radio last month. This is Adolph Reed, the noted African-American public intellectual and professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. He was speaking with radio host Doug Henwood. You can go down the Sanders platform, issue by issue, and ask, so how is this not a black issue, right? I mean, how is a $15 uh, minimum wage not a black issue? How is public works em employment, massive public works em employment pro programs you know, not a black issue, right? I mean, how is free college higher education, uh, I mean, free public higher education not a black issue? And um, on down the line, right, um, the criminal justice stuff, the rest of it. So one head-scratching aspect of this is what do people like Coates imagine is to be gained by calling the the program or calling the redistribution racial and calling it and calling it uh, reparations? I, I'm not telling you he's Coates, uh, but I, I imagine um, he and uh, people who call for reparations would respond by saying that uh, that it's meant to address wounds that were specifically racial in their origin, starting with slavery, carrying on through Jim Crow, uh, redlining uh, the structure today of the criminal justice system. These are all highly racialized uh, injuries, and only a highly racialized remedy uh, would be appropriate to cure it. What do you say? Well, I think the logic fails on its own terms. I mean, my question is, you know, look, you can grant, even for the sake of argument, that, that, that the injuries were in their origin highly and explicitly racialized. It does not necessarily follow from that that the remedy has to be in the same coin. And I, I've not seen Coates, well, I haven't seen an argument from Coates about anything, really, but I've not seen Coates or others who make that assertion actually argue for it, right? Uh, uh, give a concrete and pragmatic uh, explanation of how that works, right? I mean, that is to say, how a re or what the response to atonement, I suppose, for past, past harms would look like and what they imagine. Yeah, well, I mean, you can tell I'm flustered. I mean, what, what they imagine the response would actually be. 
So that's University of Pennsylvania professor, uh, public intellectual Adolf Reed being interviewed by uh, Doug Henwood. Your response, Tanahasi Coates? Well, let me respond to the. To, he made three three points in there, but I'm going to respond to the last one, the specificity of it, which I think is really really important. What he said was, you know, he hasn't seen anybody making a, you know an argument or you know imagine what reparations uh, would look like. In fact, you know, uh, since the article was published several times, at least two or three times, I have written very very specifically about what it would look like in my case in terms of the case. For for reparations, I focused on housing and the damage done through redlining, which was not a highly, you know, racialized form of damage. It was a racist form of damage. I think we need to be really, really clear about that. It was specifically, you know, did specific damage to black people because they were black. And in the case of redlining, we have the maps. We know exactly where the communities are that were damaged. We have census reports. We know who lived there. In cases of, uh, for instance, the GI Bill or FHA loans that black people were not allowed to give, we have folks who could, you know, go before claims office and say, I tried to do this. This was denied to me. So we, we don't have a problem of knowing where folks live. We don't have a problem of knowing what communities were affected. I would target those communities for investment and target those specific people, you know, given that they could, you know, prove, you know, what, what happened to them for investment. That's a very specific, that's a limited case of reparations. But it's what I focused on in terms of housing. And certainly someone can make a case, someone can make a case for reparations in terms of other things in terms of education, in terms of health care, in terms of the criminal justice, and could, you know, argue for specific solutions in the same way. The second thing I want to respond to is, is, you know, Professor Reed, whom I have, you know, great, great respect for, read a lot of when I was, you know, at Howard University uh, in college and his critiques of, of public intellectuals. But I think, you know, when he says what is to be gained uh, by calling it reparations, what is to be gained is the truth. That's what it is. An injury was done recompense should be made for it. It's no different than any other injury that's done to any other group of people in the world. So let's it's not talk, a political tactic. It's what it is. talk about some of those examples. What are the precedents you look at? Well, in the case for reparations, I obviously looked at the, you know, the, the grand precedent, precedent of the Holocaust, you know, um, and specifically how reparations were given uh, to, to Israel uh, in recompense, exact, specifically for folks who had, to, who had to leave the areas where Nazis came in. And what they did was they invested in Israel. They, they basically sold them goods that Israel then used to build themselves up. But again, it, you know, that's, that's, you know, a country-to-country -country transfer. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be that I mean, way. there were many Holocaust survivors who also— that's Right. That's right. And there were individual reparations made to, you know, Holocaust. There still are individual reparations being made to this very day for Holocaust survivors. So, and in fact, even in this country, we've actually had reparations in specific cases to black people. In Chicago, for the crimes of John Burge, uh, in uh, uh, North Carolina, uh, in the crimes in terms of the sterilization campaign that was made down there, the state of uh, Oklahoma during the Tulsa race, race riot admitted that they had actually perpetrated a, a, po a pogrom, dropped bombs on black people and black communities uh, down there. They declined to to give reparations, but it was it was really, really clear. And so I, I think it's very, very important. We're talking about specific people here. It's not some vague sort of, you know, mass of African Americans. These are specific people who have been injured by specific policies who deserve a specific remedy and not a universalist one that, you know, applies to people who may or may not have been injured. So you have <clears throat> Senator Obama before he was president saying, well, not exactly reparations, but these other issues of equality. Hillary Clinton basically saying the same right. and Bernie Sanders saying the same. But you're focusing on Bernie Sanders. I expected more. And maybe I'm wrong for that. I just expected more. You know, um, as I said, you know, earlier, you know, in the interview, I'm thrilled. You know, I was stunned to, you know, see how far he's come. But I'm, I'm thrilled to see an actual radical, you know, uh, left wing, you know, uh, uniquely left wing option in the Democratic Party. If we can't get the left, <laughs> if we on the left can't embrace this idea that black folks have been specifically injured and that there should be specific remedies for that injury, then we have no hope. 
You know, we really, really have, have no hope. And so, you know, forgive me for, you know, expecting more of Senator Sanders than I expect, you know, of Sen Senator Clinton. Um, but I do. Um, I wanted to go to Killer Mike, um, hip-hop artist Killer Mike, uh, who you two have a love affair going. I mean, you both have great respect for each other. Last month, he took to Twitter. You know, he introduced um, Bernie Sanders at a big rally in Atlanta. And he took to Twitter to defend Sanders after you criticized him mm -hmm. for not supporting reparations. Mm -hmm. Killer Mike tweeted, the truth of my support is this. I am pro-reparations for any people used and abused like blacks have been here and other places. And, quote, I believe the government of this country will never do this, but I can have a POTUS uh, who will be open to a federal loan program to help. And, quote, candidate that I think would be most sensitive to the very accomplishable goal and the other things that can, will help black people is Sanders. That's Killer Mike. There's actually very little in that statement right there that I disagree with. Um, one can be very, very critical of, 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 of uh, Senator Sanders on this specific issue. One can say Senator Sanders should have more, you know, explicit uh, anti-racist policy within his racial justice uh, platform, not just more general stuff, and still cast a vote for Senator Sanders and still feel that Senator Sanders is the best uh, option that we have in the race. But just because that's who you're going to vote for doesn't mean you then have to agree with everything they say. Will you be voting for Senator Sanders? <laughs> I will be voting for Senator Sanders. I have tried to avoid this question, but I, yes, I will be voting for Senator Sanders. Um, I try to avoid that because I, 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 I want to write as a journalist, you know what I mean, and separate that from my role as, I don't know, a private citizen. Um, but I don't think much is accomplished by ducking the question. Yes, I will vote for Senator Sanders. My son influenced me. And your son is right here, right outside of the studio. Um, well, I want to thank you, ta Coates, for joining us. I have a few more questions for you. We'll um, do a post-show, and we'll uh, post it at democracynow.org. ta Coates, national correspondent The Atlantic, who writes about culture, politics, and social issues. We'll link to his piece in The Atlantic about reparations and wrote the book Between the World and Me. As your body grows Portland High School basketball coaches under investigation, not by police, but by the district. Several parents complained about Lincoln's coach after what they say happened at a recent junior varsity game. KGW's Chris Willis looked into it for us. He's live downtown now. Chris? Yeah, those parental complaints, Joe, are now calling for Coach Pat Adelman to be fired. District officials are not saying a word, but parents, though, are using words like racism and humiliation said that they were not playing aggressively enough, said that he thought they were afraid to touch the black players at Jefferson. Willamette Week's uh, Beth Slovic started hearing these allegations weeks ago. Her story today outlines the formal complaint that the Portland Public School District is now dealing with. It involves the actions of head coach Pat Adelman during halftime of a JV game January 12th versus Jefferson High. Parents say Adelman burst into the locker room and told the players he thought they were afraid to touch black players from Jefferson. What he did next, according to the complaint, is the center of the investigation. To make his point, he then singled out two black players who weren't from the JV team. They were from the freshman squad and the varsity squad and um, compelled the white players on the JV squad to, to touch the black players. And one by one, the white players were instructed to reach out and touch the black kids. Four parents are part of the official complaint sent to Superintendent Carol Smith. And she is said to be mortified by the parents' accusations. Coach Adelman is in his first year at Lincoln High. He's not commenting, neither is the district, only to tell us 
that this is an active, ongoing investigation. Remember, no one is going to treat you special just because you are black. Thanks, Brittany. Now to Henrico, where some parents are outraged about a controversial video shown at Glen Allen High School. It tackles things like racial profiling and the school-to-prison pipeline. On your side, Chris Thomas is live with reaction from school leaders. Chris, what are they saying about all of this? Well, Sabrina, I got a long statement from school leaders. They say they welcome feedback. Well, here it is. You can find it on YouTube, Structural Discrimination, the Unequal Opportunity Race. It's a video shown to students at a Glen Allen High School Black History Month program. The reality of it, it's over. The aftermath of it is poverty pimps that will not let it die. Radio personality Craig Johnson slamming the video. That chronicles things like racial profiling. He says it's racially divisive. Dr. King gave his life, okay, he gave his life so that America would be a place where we're judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. And now we have poverty pimps being led by our current president, Barack Obama, who all they talk about is the color of skin. Damn you, Obama. We got this letter from a parent complaining the video is leading to tensions with alleged tweets like, y'all are privileged, get the blank over it. School leaders sending out this statement saying the students participated in a presentation that involved American history and racial discourse. A segment of the video was one component of a thoughtful discussion in which all viewpoints were encouraged. As always, we are welcoming a feedback from students and their families, and we address concerns directly as they come forward. This statement means nothing. Don Blake's granddaughter was at that assembly. And they're sitting there watching a video that is dividing them up from a racial standpoint. It's a white guilt kind of video. And so? I think somebody should be held accountable for this. Force that person to stand on that stage and defend that video. And I'm telling you, I will mop the floor with that person. Now that grandfather says he wants school leaders to host a meeting on this topic. We'll keep you posted on what happens. For now on your side, Chris Thomas, NBC 12 News. So how's the college responding to this incident? We're having a, um, a race forum. And what's that? A forum on race so we can discuss the incident and the surrounding issues of race. So the usual lip service. Uh, no comment. Cell phone video may help identify Texas A&M students accused of yelling racial slurs at Dallas high school kids. State Senator Royce West's office says video captured by school faculty is now in the university's hands. Andrea Lucia live outside Uplift Hampton, the alleged target of those slurs. Uh, the people there were really friendly. Got a bunch of howdies and everything. That one incident is kind of like gets everybody like, ooh. 16-year-old Traquari Wilson believes the confrontation began when several A&M students spotted his friend carrying a UT Longhorn bag. So they were saying, go back to where you came from. And one of my uh, peers had turned around and said, you do realize we're all black or African-American, right? 
Wilson and his classmates kept walking, but faculty supervisors trailing behind allegedly heard the college students use a racial slur. It's kind of like an eye-opener for me, really. An Uplift spokesperson says at another point in the tour, an A&M student reportedly asked two high schoolers what they thought of her Confederate flag earrings. Just like being hit over the head with a hammer. State Senator Royce West says a Texas A&M police officer initially told the group the students were expressing First Amendment rights, but that he eventually took a report. West now wants to see the university send a strong message. If indeed these students engaged in this behavior, then it should be expelled. The university president apologized to the Dallas students, saying, quote, I deeply regret the pain and hurt feelings the incident caused these young students. But this aspiring veterinarian says it hasn't changed his impression of the school. I actually thought it was really great. Georgia, Georgia. How is this for teenagers taking a stand? The newspaper staff at Atlanta's Grady High School is calling for the removal of the school's name, saying it is named for a white supremacist. Education reporter Donna Lowry spoke to a young journalist today who wrote this article. Donna, what's the latest on this? Well, the students say their school needs a more inclusive namesake. The editorial starts by getting right to the point. Henry Woodfin Grady was a white supremacist. He believed that the white race was superior to all others, and I don't think in a community like the one that we're in, that should be in a, like, a name that we kind of idolize. They are two of the seven-member editorial staff of the award-winning Southerner newspaper Grady High School that decided to call for removal of the school's name. They say they did it because of articles in the issue on race topics and given the national and local discussions on removing offensive symbols of the past. The editorial also refers to a decision last week by the Houston School Board to take Henry Grady's name off a of school there. We're surprised that this story has garnered so much attention given the fact that we have published a lot of stories um, tackling racial issues and other social issues in the past. They admit the article has generated lots of negative comments. People do have legitimate arguments as to why you maybe wouldn't want to change the name because erasing history isn't necessarily, you know, productive. Fellow students have mixed reactions. I feel like we should have a choice into making our own decisions as in changing the name. The school district issued a statement about the newspaper editorial saying we respect the position on the issue but they have policy that calls for the school board chairperson to appoint a special committee for changing the name of an APS facility. I think that by publishing this article, even if Grady's name doesn't change, um, at least we've sort of approached that topic, and I think that that's something that we can look back on proudly. The students told me they didn't necessarily expect their editorial to lead to a change in the school name, but they did want it to spark a conversation on the topic, and it has certainly done that. And we want to know what you think. Should they change the school's name? Cast your vote in our poll up right now on 11 Alive's Facebook page. Georgia. Georgia. A local police chief tells us he's upset by racist graffiti found on a family's house and the family dealing with the hurtful vandalism 
say they're devastated. Channel 2's Taisha Fernandez is live in Carroll County. That's where the Bowden chief told her he was shocked when he saw it. The chief has been with the city for more than 30 years. He told me he's never seen offensive graffiti that was spray-painted on this house. It was on these vehicles, even this mailbox. He told me he is not tolerating this kind of behavior. When I drove up, um, kind of caught me off guard. It was early Wednesday morning. A Bowden bus driver was on her normal route on Sally Ann Circle when she saw this racist graffiti. She called 911. Police Chief Mark Brock responded to the call and was stunned to see the letters KKK and these offensive words. That's not a normal occurrence in our town. He grew up with Dwight Strickland and knows his wife, Jimmy, so he took this hate crime personally. Jimmy Strickland told me she heard someone shaking spray paint cans at 5 a.m. The strong smell alarmed her. So I got up, but I didn't go outside. I just started looking under the bed because I smelled a smell like gas. She went back to sleep and woke up to this. I have no enemies, you know, so I, I, I just don't understand. Chief Brock and his investigators have already started looking into this. I'd already checked with a couple of local places to see if I could find out if there was any paint sold, but hadn't found anybody with any of that color paint yet, so just kind of getting started into it. Someone poisoned this family's dog about two months ago. They didn't think much of it until this graffiti. They're working on getting a home surveillance system because they're afraid whoever did this is coming back. We're live here in Bowden. Taisha Fernandez, Channel 2 Action News. Burning to be worthy of his land is just like the We're about to meet a mother, a substitute teacher, who has had to teach her children not to turn on the faucets in their home. It took a long time for Flint, Michigan's water crisis to get national attention. Now politicians are talking about it. Hillary Clinton toured the city yesterday. A Democratic presidential debate is even scheduled there next month. But that doesn't make life easier for Jenea McDonald and others who call Flint home. It doesn't answer their questions or help them plan for meals and bathing without clean tap water. What I'll tell you about that water is poison. Did you say it's poison? I met Jenea when I visited Flint a couple weeks ago. She has taught her six-year-old son, Justice, that the water is poison. Because I, I don't know any way to spl- explain to a six-year-old why you can't take a bath anymore every day, why you can't help mommy wash the dishes anymore. So I told him it's poison. And that way he'll know I'm serious. Don't play with it. Even when I'm not looking, if this is poison, I better not touch it. Government negligence allowed lead and other poisons to get into the water. Now nobody knows how long it will take until it'll be safe to drink again. Here's what giving up tap water means for Jenea's family in a typical day. What's your name? What's your name? It's early afternoon. Two-year-old Josiah and his older brother Justice are playing while their mom makes dinner for her husband Earl and the kids. I started my chicken off this morning with about eight bottles of water to start to thaw it out. She can cook without even thinking. Her hands know the recipes. Tonight it's baked chicken with baby lima beans and rice. The recipes have a new ingredient these days. I've been doing this so long I kind of know how many bottles of water it takes for each pan. So for this one... What I'm making tonight, I only need two bottles of water. Um, 
when I use my bigger pan, say like this one to make spaghetti, um, this one is seven bottles. The city gave her a water filter for the kitchen faucet, but she doesn't trust it. After all, the city told her the water was safe a year ago when it was actually full of lead. While she waits for the water to boil, she thinks about how much things have changed since she was a kid. Bottled water used to be a luxury. People didn't drink it. Everyone drank tap water. When I was growing up, you went outside, got the water hose, and drank some water. Yeah, not happening. I will never trust this water ever again. My boys will never experience the childhood I experienced in Flint, drinking water out of a water hose. When Flint switched its water supply two years ago, Jenea knew something was wrong. It was a funny color and smelled like sewage. Eventually, she started buying bottled water. I mean, my food bill for a week would be upwards of 250 to $300, and at least 100 of that was water. At least. No food stamps, no assistance, just having to do what I have to do because i got to keep my voice safe. Plus, she was still paying a water bill every month. She was working at a homeless shelter then. Her husband is disabled. She says they practically went broke buying bottled water. But it still was not enough to protect her and her family. After weeks of showering in the poisoned water, Jenea's long, flowing hair started coming out in clumps. Now she has a short bob. Anyone who knows me, the first thing when you say, you remember Jenea? The second thing they will say is, the one with the long hair. It's gone. It's gone. So that was, it was part of me. But she doesn't even worry so much about her hair. She really worries about the damage to her kids. And she has no way to know what is caused by the water and what isn't. You know, like my son, they say he has eczema. And I'll show you his wrist and how bad it is. And it's been that way for over a year. And his doctor, you know, more and more creams and ointments and creams. And none of these little creams and ointments are helping him. When we ask six-year-old Justice about the rashes on his wrists, he says, maybe a bear scratched me. The younger boy, Josiah, has problems, too. Even now, I could tell some slower developments in Josiah, you know, and who's to say that's not from the water? But, of course, my government is going to tell me I'm paranoid, and it's not that. Show me it's not. I'll wait. Lead poisoning lowers kids' IQ and slows their development. It's constantly on Jenea's mind. She remembers filling Josiah's baby bottles with formula using the water from the tap. She feels guilty, like maybe she should have done something sooner. You know, it's a lot of things that I think about that, you know, a lot of people don't even know I think about. Um, like when you came in and you said, hi, Etu Justice would have been all over you. He'd have been, hi, I'm Justice. I don't get that from Josiah. And I don't know that that didn't come from me fixing his bottles with that water. So now Jenea's daily routine includes water pickups. She's grateful that gas is below $2 a gallon since she does so much more driving these days. With the chicken in the oven, she climbs into the car. First stop is Triumph Church. And I love it because you pull up and they load your car. Hey, how many are you looking for today? How many can I have? About five or six of them? Yeah, sounds good to me. Okay. Each case has a couple dozen half-liter bottles. Hattie Collins is organizing the distribution. Where does all this water come from? Who donated it? This right here come from Indiana, uh, Georgia. We had one yesterday from California. They're coming all over, and that's a blessing to yes, try yes, Thank y'all. Thank y'all. Love you. Love you too, darling. I'll Brandy see you Thursday. Okay.
That's amazing that water is coming from as far away as California and South Carolina. Isn't it? That's amazing. I am proud of us. People, us human beings. I was not liking humans for a while. We pull into another line of cars in front of a firehouse. And these are National Guard troops, all in their camouflage they fatigues are. and everything. Michigan Governor Rick Snyder deployed these troops to hand out water. They limit the amount each person can pick up. You come down here, where they're getting the water from all of these donations. They're getting this money for all of this water. Y'all gonna get two per household. Come back tomorrow. I don't have time tomorrow. I got two kids. Jenea keeps a stockpile just in case. If one of the kids has a spill or another accident, a bath can take five or six cases of water. If a snowstorm hits, they need enough backup to get through a few days. It takes her about an hour to hit all the stops each day, and she has no idea when this will end. Driving gives her a lot of time to think. Is this America? I am, like, stupefied that I'm not in, like, Ethiopia or somewhere. You're talking about clean water. Back home, she unloads the cases of water and puts dinner on the table. The kids have bottles in the bathroom to brush their teeth before bed. Jenea worries that the donations will dry up when people stop paying attention to Flint. She worries that government help for her kids will go away when the immediate crisis subsides. They look okay today. What are they going to look like in five years, in ten years? And at that point, where will all of these government officials and things be then when I'm dealing with the repercussions of that Nobody knows the answers to those questions, but we'll find out. We're going to keep in touch with the McDonald family and keep you updated on their story as it unfolds over months and years. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, February 13th, 2016. So I have been told. Compensatory call-in. Looking forward to hearing from victims of racism, non-white people. If you have commentary uh, that you would like to share, uh, feel free to chime in. The number to dial is 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. The number again is 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. We are fundraising for 2016 Invest. If you think the program is constructive, we are listener-supported counter-racist radio. Uh, The blog address is racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, drop me an email and we will get you a physical mailing address. Huge thanks to all the folks who have supported us. Uh, It will be our seven-year anniversary next Sunday. I hope we have provided a platform so that folks can get a better understanding of what white supremacy racism is, how it works, and suggestions, things that we can and should be doing to replace white supremacy 
with justice. You can also invest by sharing the program. You can tweet, uh, share the links if you have favorite programs. Certainly, 31 times Dr. Welsing was on the program and any other broadcast that uh, you think are informative, that it would benefit victims of racism to hear the content, share. Put it on your Facebook page or tweet it out if you have a blog or other uh, real estate online. Post the content. That is super helpful to uh, get the information to other victims of racism. Quick thoughts that I'll get in. Uh, before we get to folks who called in, uh, I saw today I would have included audio, but it, it happened uh, so so recently. I think it all of this just broke today. Uh, Supreme Court justice and suspected racist uh, Antonin Scalia uh, reportedly died uh, in Texas. He was found dead uh, at his ranch at the age of 79. Uh, speaking of Dr. Frances Cress Welsing in her uh, final lecture at the Welsing Institute, she talked uh, at some detail uh, about Justice Scalia, the commentary that they were having about uh, affirmative action uh, and access to law school for black students, uh, where he basically, uh, I'm boiling it down, but I'm paraphrasing. He was basically saying that, you know, that maybe black students, maybe they, they, it's too rigorous for them to go to the normal law schools with the white scholars. Maybe they need like a law school for dummies, uh, for black people, you know, because our little puny Negro brains, uh, amongst other commentary that he has had, uh, down through the years, I posted a piece from the New York Times that kind of gave a short biography of uh, his path, his career to getting to the court, and then some of his more uh, memorable uh, commentary since he's been on the bench. I will note that people have uh, taken the death of this suspected racist. I, said, I think he was a white person. I could be an error, but I think he was accepted as white. That many people have taken this opportunity to uh, target President Obama and Justice Clarence Thomas to practice racism against them. Uh, you can look online. There were many reports where people uh, were joking and mocking uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, people saying that uh, Clarence Thomas basically just sat on the court and did whatever Anton Scalia did, just echoed whatever his uh, sentiments did, uh, were in their different rulings and briefs and what have you. Uh, and also, I think one of the first things that came to mind when I saw that you know this happened, that this was not just people making up stuff online was, uh-oh, doesn't this mean President Obama gets to nominate a replacement? Like, isn't that the, the codified procedure uh, when there is a vacancy on the court? And immediately, uh, white people across the spectrum uh, were saying, uh, basically, if you think that we're going to let that Negro uh, cap his term in the White House by nominating uh, another colored to put on the bench, you have got another thing coming, and we do not plan uh, on accepting any nomination that he puts forward. We'll just wait until next year when there's somebody else uh, in the White House, but that certainly will make this fascinating to see how uh, the last 11 months or so of the uh, quote-unquote Obama presidency concludes. Uh, other quick comments uh, that I will get in before I get to the folks who uh, dialed in. Uh, one of the things uh, I'm even ashamed that, you know, I should have been doing this earlier, perhaps. I normally will do searches, right, to try to compile news clips. And just to emphasize, I know we have a lot of people that are new listeners, right, the compensatory call in. Again, compensating for many things. One of the things we're compensating for uh, is that I've concluded that many non-white people just don't get an opportunity uh, to check the news, to kind of see what's happening. Uh, yes, many things are not reported in the news. Many things are not reported accurately uh, in the news. But even 
that. A lot of us just don't get an opportunity to check to see uh, what's being talked about, the way it's being talked about, what's being omitted. Uh, so I try to compensate for that just to kind of give a snippet of some of the things that happened uh, over the past seven days. Really emphasize that I don't dig like, you know, to try to think, find things in the archives from a month ago or a year ago consistently every week. That is like a rule uh, for the compensatory call in. All of the news clips every week. This is just what happened in the last seven days to really emphasize, you know, and I always say there's way more content. I just, you know, try to distill it down to things that really stood out that I think, you know, folks should think about. But there's always tons more comment. This is just a scintilla of kind of some of the things that happened. And a lot of it is focused on this area of the world, not even getting, you know, when she start going to other parts of the globe. Uh, but within that. I normally will try to also, in addition to checking different news outlets and what have you, to see what they're talking about, what's being reported. Uh, I'll do searches on Google for different terms, white supremacy, racism, see what pops up, white privilege even sometimes. And I just, on a whim, uh, yesterday said I will look and see what was reported over the last seven days with the term N-word. And I say nigger uh, on the program. I do not do any of that uh, self-censoring. I think that's one of the problems, us trying to sanitize white supremacy racism. I just try to be uh, explicit. This is what it is. Uh, so I search for N-word, right? And that's spell it out that way, N hyphen word. So I search for the last seven days to see what pops up. Of course, you get a lot of content. What I expected, you know, we should bury the N-word, stop saying it, it's Kanye West's fault. That people, I expected a lot of that. However, you will also find a ton of different news reports. It won't be anything casual. It'll be uh, the chief of the police department under fire for calling black police officer nigger. <laughs> a student uh, in Texas comes out to find swastika and nigger, or N-word, uh, painted on the side of his car. Uh, Georgia House, nigger, painted on the mailbox. It'll just be tons, story after. It was pages. You could just go through and pluck out news reports of different types of trashy and terroristic conduct. Lots and lots of workplace racism. There were quite a few stories where different people on their jobs, various places of employment, being called a nigger on the job. I said I will make that a staple of, of part of my research from now on just to see how many different reports are popping up on a week-to-week -week basis where you can just see racism being uh, reported in the news just on the basis of the word nigger. And I don't think you can blame uh, Kanye West or BET or whoever else they want to do some victim. I don't think they are most uh, to blame for that. I would still go with, with whites on that one as well. Uh, other things that stood out, I thought it was significant in the report where they were talking about the black professor at Princeton, uh, Imani Perry, where she was stopped. She got handcuffed, uh, taken into uh, the department and handcuffed to a desk over, uh, they reported about $130 in uh, parking ticket fines. When they were talking about Professor Perry taking time to write about her experience and how she thought she was a victim of racism, uh, you could hear the people who were reporting this, you could hear them when they brought this up saying, oh, yeah, she wrote about this. She went online and wrote uh, about a thousand page uh, response about all this. You could hear them say, oh, my God, <laughs> I can't believe it. This, who does this nigger think she is? I thought that was hugely uh, significant as well. Uh, let's see. The uh, last comment uh, I will get in, then we'll hit the phone lines. The segment where they were talking about the bill being sent to Tamir Rice's family, uh, where they were going to charge them for the ambulance EMS services uh, after uh, this enforcement officer representing the city of Cleveland killed him. Uh, 
in that segment, they talked to one of the white police union officials, and he was saying how the city just doesn't do business correctly, and they don't support this. You know, we're supposed to, to follow policy and procedure and do the correct thing, and we just don't do that here. They have video for this. So you could see in the background, he has a sign that says, all lives matter. Uh, I thought that was apropos, given the tackiness and trashiness uh, of this whole situation. And I would just add this sort of thing. I never chalk any of this up to coincidence uh, or accident. I just feel like this is another part of the uh, terrorism, uh, state-sponsored terrorism to continue to antagonize and traumatize uh, the Tamir Rice family. Uh, With that, we will go ahead uh, and get to the phone lines if folks have commentary. Again, the number is 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. If you could share one time, get your comments in, and then allow other people to share one time. That would be great. Uh, We should have time if you have additional commentary that you want to get in. We should have time for that, but just to make sure everyone gets an opportunity to share at least once, I would encourage you not to lollygag. If you think you want to participate, go ahead and get your hand up. There's no reason to be shy or bashful. We are all victims here. Just go ahead and raise your hand, and I will again ask if we could please not use metaphors. That is exclusive to the Saturday program. Again, I found that uh, things, a lot of times, it really moves us away from clarity uh, when we are depending on a lot of metaphors. Uh, You'll notice even myself, if I use a metaphor in the Saturday program, I try and catch myself and go back and just state it clearly. Uh, It is a major problem. I do not think that we understand that. I view it as as incredibly incorrect. If you cannot articulate your sentiments, your thoughts, your counter-racist suggestions or concepts without a metaphor, you should be able to clearly articulate what it is that you have to say without depending uh, on some sort of analogy or metaphor as opposed to just defining it explicitly. That is a major problem, and I have found that consistently it leads to confusion where people are not really getting it exactly and or uh, people are just going with the feeling, how the analogy, how the metaphor makes them feel as opposed to really processing and thinking clearly about what's being said. A lot of times people are even comparing, uh, comparing things that are not equivalent at all. That happens consistently, and whites, they are supreme at using words in this sort of manner just to cause, generate confusion. So if we could please, no metaphors for the Saturday program. Thank you kindly. All the folks that doubt Purge 3 came out as well, thought that was important. Purge, and it's not even called Purge 3, it's called the Purge election year. We've talked about this film in detail before. Pam blogged about it, racismws.com. I did a YouTube video about it. We've been talking about this film for years. Third installment coming. I do not think that that is a coincidence, an accident at all. With that, folks that dialed in, uh, feel free to chime in. Uh, Well, hmm. Uh, I'll try and stagger it so at least the first group of people who dialed in with a hand up, your line is open, and I'll just add the rest of the folks as we uh, move through the line. So it uh, looks like the first set of people that dialed in with a hand up, your line should be open. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Thank you, Gus, for the program this evening. Uh, good evening to everyone here today. I am still learning. I have concluded that black people's problems are white people. White people lie to black people in all areas of people activity. White people are serious about being serious 
about practicing racism, white supremacy. Um, since Dr. Francis Chris Wilson's death, I have been uh, depressed. My mental health is getting better over time. Um, Dr. Wilson's dedication to black people was amazing. Her acts of self-respect for black people and self-respect for herself was amazing. Her work to explain, inform, and educate us on racism, white supremacy was amazing. Everything about Dr. Wilson was amazing, from the beauty of her natural afro to the amazing role model posture of a black woman she was. The most terrorized people on the planet are black people, more specifically the black male. Dr. Wilson's work made racism, white supremacy, ebony clear to me as a black man. Thank you, Gus, for the work that you do. No further comment. For sure. I hope you are managing your uh, mental health as, as best you can. I know a lot of folks uh, took the loss of Dr. Welsing very hard. Uh, she would definitely want us to do as much as we can to try to protect, mend uh, our fractured uh, mental health as best we can, but a lot of folks are, are feeling you and, and still very pained, uh, myself included, monumental loss. And uh, again, she left us a lot of work to uh, work uh, to help us uh, solve this problem. Other folks uh, who have a hand up, do you have commentary you want to get in? Have you heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi, good evening to the host, good evening to the callers and listeners. Um, just listening to the stories, the new stories, um, it just reminded me of something that Muhammad Ali said, still a nigger, when he had been asked the question by um, Walter Cronkite during his heyday, how are you doing, Muhammad? And his response was, still a nigger. Um, additionally, I find it very interesting that when it comes to white people and their history, we shouldn't forget it. We should always remember it. They are offended when their history becomes compromised. However, black people are supposed to be content with us forgetting all about our history we're supposed to be content with white people changing the history books to refer to the institution of slavery as indentured, as us being indentured servants or low-wage workers. But we have to accept their history, and we have to forget ours. I just think that is extremely poignant. And I think that especially this month and black history should be every day, actually. But particularly during this month, I think that it's very interesting that they do. They were detailing this story about black, about white people, racist, white supremacists, getting up in arms about the fact that their history, somehow their history was either being skewed or removed from the archives. 
that's all my comments for now. Thank you. I don't think it's just uh, Grady High School. Uh, I think, uh, and as a former Atlanta resident, I think they have a hospital that is named Grady as well down there. Not that that is not the uh, the only two monuments. Those are not the only two monuments uh, in the capital city of Georgia that are shrines to racist white supremacists. Not at all. That's just two that I know of. Uh, Folks have other comments that they want to add if we haven't heard from you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I'll do this to you guys and to all the callers and the listeners. Um, first, I wanted to say to the first brother that was speaking, um, I missed hearing, hearing your voice. I don't know your name, but um, I wish you all the best. Um, absolutely, I agree with, with Gus. Um, the loss of Dr. Welsing is immense, and I just find myself having uh, Welsing's aha moments all the time. Um, so I'm with you on that, and I wish you all the best as far as um, as far as uh, healing and, and, like I said, your mental health. Um, I thought about the clip you played with uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates um, in regards to uh, voting voting for Bernie Sanders and the comments that he made regarding Bernie Sanders' position on reparations. And I just found it so poignant because, to speak of Dr. Wellstein again, um, she repeatedly talked about black people coming together and addressing racism, white supremacy with any of the candidates that are running for the presidency and basically informing them that as long as you do not acknowledge and basically put, put out there that you understand there's a, a global system of racism, white supremacy, and that black people have been suffering under that system for 500 years up to one minute ago, um, essentially we're not going to vote for you. And I think that that's uh, uh, one of the greatest um, one of the greatest expositions of knowledge that she's ever discussed simply because we don't have to always agree or be uh, unified as black people, united independent, but that should be something that we should all be um, on the same page about. And if we could get more black people to be on that page and address that issue directly, I think we might be able to make some headway. So just that discussion was interesting. And then also in regards to that, um, Bernie Sanders <laughs> uh, avoiding the whole topic of reparations and him being Jewish. It's funny because I used to work uh, on Wall Street um, and I did stock and bond management and I worked at Bank of New York and they had, I worked for a division called State of Israel Bonds and the entire State of Israel Bond was the process of paying Jewish people reparations for the Holocaust and they still have State of Israel State of Israel bonds to this day, and the kind of money that used to flow through that office in the form of stocks and bonds was unfathomable. Um, and it's interesting that he is a Jewish person who I'm sure has been a, a beneficiary of the uh, reparations process for worldwide uh, European Jewish people would have an aversion to reparations for black people. But then I thought about it, the fact that um, black people have been so indoctrinated by the Christian religion to accept the Jewish struggle as their own, that um, a lot of us don't really know the history that Jewish people were the slave merchants. The entire slave trade, they were the people who were doing the buying and selling. And if you study Jewish history, there's uh, two great books by the Nation of Islam, The uh, Secret Relationship Between Blacks and Jews, in which they take the words of Jewish scholars, basically outlining the fact that Jewish people sold more black people than anyone else. But yet today we are, as a group, 
we tend to align ourselves with them in many ways that are not beneficial to us. So um, all of these things kind of came to me with, uh, with the, the Bernie Sanders clip, I mean the clip on Ta-Nehisi Coates discussing Bernie, Sam- Bernie Sanders. Um, also, the clip on Flint, uh, Flint, Michigan, with the black female who was having issues taking care of her children and just the damage that was done to them by the lead, the lead in the water was very interesting because um, about maybe a week, maybe a week to two, about two weeks ago, I was listening to the local news in New Jersey, and they were talking about, they named a bunch of cities, which included Jersey City, um, Trenton, New Jersey, and North New Jersey, but there were at least 10 cities they named that they said had higher lead poisoning rates than Flint, Michigan. But the lead poisoning did not come from the water. It came from lead paint. And I remember years ago, um, Wise Intelligent, who's from Trenton, New Jersey, actually grew up in one of the probably the most notorious housing projects in Trenton, New Jersey. They're now, they're now torn down. But he actually came back here and had a whole campaign, and he actually made a song called Get the Lead Out, which was in relation to the, the damage being done to young black children regarding lead paint and um, the, the, the sheer high numbers of young black children being psychologically damaged by the lead paint. And then also it made me think about when they were t- talking about her riding around to these different locations to get water, and it immediately made me think of The Walking Dead, just simply the fact that black people in Michigan are dead to the government. They don't care. And if, you look, if anyone has seen The Walking Dead, they have to go on these excursions just for basic necessities. And I don't think any of us, really who have who have not experienced what they're experiencing in Flint could imagine what it's like just to chase down that one basic necessity. So when they're following her around to all these places trying to get water and they're rationing out water and she has to ration out how many bottles of water it takes to cook food and she has it down to a science because she's been suffering for so long. It's just unfathomable to the human mind to think that a basic necessity, um, and I said this years ago, I said eventually we're going to have to pay to breathe air. They're going to ruin the air so bad that we're going to probably have to pay for oxygen tanks just to have safe air to breathe. This is, this is how white people capitalize off of racism, white supremacy, and terrorizing uh, non-white people, but most intensely black people. And it really made me think of that. And then also when she talked about her hair falling out, um, how she was known for having long hair, but now because of uh, dealing with this lead, lead, uh, lead in the water, her hair is falling out, and now she has a, a short bob. And it was weird because uh, just a couple of days ago, I read an article in the news that stated that there was a black female in Newark, New Jersey, who went to an African hair braiding store to get her hair weave. This is a place they said she had been frequenting for years, and um, they found her dead recently um, in, in the house with a very young child. I think the child might have been three or four. But um, what happened was they basically found that the weave that they put in her hair had maggots in it, and the maggots had eaten through to her brain and killed her. And I was like, wow, a lot of black women, um, I don't know if they know this, but I know it, and there's temples in India where Indian women will shave their hair as a, um, as a offering to the deity for blessings for that year. And those, in those temples, they collect the hair and ship it over here. Um, also, they get hair from cadavers, from dead people. So I'm just assuming she might have had maggot eggs in the hair that they might have harvested from a dead person, and the African hair braiders had no idea. So now this woman is dead because there was maggots in her weave that basically flourished and, and ate her brain and killed her. Um, so it's just pause for thought for those black females who do wear weaves um, just to be very careful about what you're putting in your hair. And they also have um, 
I've read information about weeds having formaldehyde, which also causes all kinds of brain damage and body damage. So um, just be aware of that. And then also, recently, I also saw um, uh, an article about Taylor Swift. Kanye West recently came out with a song in which he talked about um, he thought that he would still um, ha- that he would have the ability to have sex with Taylor Swift, and he called her the B word in the song. He didn't think it was a negative thing. But the reaction was very interesting. This is what I found poignant, was that Taylor Swift has a younger brother um, who bought a pair of Kanye West sneakers. And the instant that he found out that Kanye West called his sister the B word, he literally said, I'm doing spring cleaning. And he took a, 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 a picture on Twitter showing himself dumping Kanye West sneakers in the garbage. Now, I know his sneakers are very expensive, but just the idea of that white self-respect, the instant that he called Taylor Swift the B-word. Her brother did not hesitate to get rid of his sneakers and basically land blast him. Whereas, and I thought about it, if that was a a black person, we might have thought it was the coolest thing ever. Um, And it's just the mindset of that self-respect. Again, Dr. Wilson, that self-respect, the whole idea of I'm not going to tolerate someone calling me out of my name or disrespecting me in that fashion, and I will sever all ties financially to dealing with you, uh, you know, if you, you know, uh, basically behave in that manner or disrespect in that manner. And that's the kind of self-respect that I feel that we as black people need to cultivate so that um, we can start to make a, a dent in the system of racism, white supremacy. Um, that's, that's what I have right now. And um, thank you very much for taking my call. For sure. For sure. Just really quickly, the, uh, on the lead thing, I had a news clip where they were talking about New Jersey, uh, and it was a specific school where they were saying that they've had bottled water uh, in the school uh, for a long period of time, I think at least a year, uh, because the water's been poisoned. Uh, High levels of lead, these were black children. Uh, The only reason that I did not play it was I think that is like one of the few times where I have seen a major outlet talking about the Flint water situation and they focused on a black family. Like all the other clips that I've seen, Melissa Harris Perry, Democracy Now!, it's been a white family consistently. And typically it's been a white woman uh, talking about how, oh, our children and ran, 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 all that. And even this, it was on NPR, so there, there was no video to see this black female and her children and her husband and all that. But that was the only reason I played it because I feel like that's just been another aspect uh, of the white terrorism to consistently portray whites when they've said all along, at least I've seen consistently, Flint is predominantly black city, although we're not showing any black people as the victims of all this, predominantly black city. We just happen to only be able to find white families when we want to put a camera on somebody. But that was the only reason I played that clip and not the one that was talking about the same situation in New Jersey. Uh, Other folks that we have not uh, heard from, you should be with us. Uh, Hey, uh, good evening. Oh, you go ahead, sir. Oh, you go ahead, sir. Nah, because there's, there's a lot of background noise. I'm going to wait till I get my vehicle. So you go ahead. Okay, well, good evening, guys. Good evening to all the callers. Um, good evening to Roz. That was a, a great um, little dissertation you just did. Um, I had some of the same points. Um, Gus, um, I love that you're keeping the focus on the white kids. Uh, very important aspect of everything. Uh, with the clips, and um, you know, I never thought I always do the same thing you do when I look stuff up. I put certain words in the search engine, you know, racism, racist, white supremacy, whatever. I never thought the N word. That's a great idea. I never thought it. And um, I'm sure you pull up a whole bunch of stuff. Um, poor Justice Scalia. 
you know, maybe we should do a tribute show for him. Um, you know, um, I wanted to say a few things about the clips. Um, Flint, um, Snyder will be doing a hearing in Congress about um, what's going on there. And according to the EPA, they, um, the EPA said that, that he knew about it and uh, he went out of his way to keep them from coming into the state to further look into things. And um, that, I'm sure, will come up in his hearing. I doubt he'll get in any trouble. He'll have to probably just pay for more stuff. Um, he did a clip who spends um, $250 a week on water. And her skin has rashes. And, um, you know, she was upset because she fed her baby formula made from those contaminated water, you know. Um, if anyone doesn't get reparations, if they don't get them, you could just forget about it, you know what I'm saying? They, I mean, she could prove that clear this is environmental racism and chemical warfare. If they don't get reparations, then we might as well just give up the discussion. Uh, host floor. Um, now, what I always understood that when police go to jail, uh, they don't live in general population. They usually live in protective custody, and they also have the correctional department officers looking out for them. So I don't understand why they're not putting where he is out there. I just think that that's um, it's very odd, um, and um, I, I would love to find out why. Um, you know, playing the, the race card, um, this is about the election. Um, Clinton this week is meeting with Sandra Bland's mother. I mean, very smart. Um, she wants to get those well, black votes. Um, she dropped the name of a slain brother in the Milwaukee debate this week. Um, she's trying to go further to the left on Bernie about racism to secure that southern black vote that's coming up. And, um, you know, really stepping up for deception. Uh, in my opinion, we can't vote ourselves out of racism. I don't care if we vote in the block or not. Uh, so that's just why I don't participate but I do enjoy being entertained by watching it. Uh, I think that Bernie, po Bernie Sanders' policies would be more helpful to us if they, he could get them through, but there's no way he could win a general election talking about the stuff he's talking about. I mean, it's just not going to happen. They, I mean, it'll be a landslide if he tries to come out, especially with the way the Republicans are looking. So I just think that, you know, this is just to, to get your attention. Um, either way, we lose. Um, and uh, also, him not being for reparations or anyone like um, Raj just spoke out said he's a he's a Jew. They've um, definitely gotten reparations. And uh, also, um, with the book we're reading, you know, the the slave without the slave, they wouldn't even have a system of currency or, or credit in this country. So, you know, that's all I have to say about that. And Kai Gurley. Um, I said when we had the whole school thing, half justice, I think this is the same thing. Um, would it have been the same if this was a young white cop? That's what I keep thinking, and I've heard his family come out and say the same thing. Um, he broke down and cried for three minutes during the testimony that Asian cop did. And uh, this was a case where I, I didn't even realize before they even had a Chinese judge. I was like, wow, you know? Um, but, you know, I, I don't deny that that's a dangerous job. I mean, you couldn't pay me enough money to walk up and down the staircases in the pink houses and the projects in Brooklyn. I mean, that's just no money in the world. Um, and, you know, we had, like, we're in the world's richest city. 
on Wall Street, NASDAQ, the UN. I mean, every building downtown has marble lobbies. I mean, you if you blocks and blocks and blocks of skyscrapers. I mean, I've been to buildings with indoor gardens and palm trees with birds, rare birds and butterflies flying around the lobby. I mean, it's just, and you have a staircase in the project with no lights. I mean, that's just racism playing out. Um, I sort of, they had one black drawer. He gave a speech and he kind of came out and said, and I said this last week that they wanted to see the gun. They wanted to pull that trigger again. And um, what he pretty much said was they didn't loosen the trigger. It was no way this could have been a mistake. That trigger was hard for them to pull, even as the jury. This wasn't something that could have been done mistakenly. Um, Ferguson, you know, I mean, I think we could learn from the Indians. You never make a deal with the white men. They negotiated, came to an agreement, and decided they're not going to go through with the agreement they made. And um, if they make us go through with it, we'll just find another way to sort more black people. I mean, we don't care about the Justice Department. Just blatant racism. Um, um, lastly, um, Beyonce, the self-proclaimed feminist. Um, we know how that played out for her last year, a couple years ago. But now she's being uh, called a black supremacist. <laughs> and, um, you know, I said, man, I haven't, you know, black people, when we do the Super Bowl halftime show, we always end up in controversy. I mean, Beyonce probably would have been better off bringing Justin Bieber on stage and having her unzip her blouse and she show a little nipple like Janet did. I mean, this was just crazy, especially since this is the biggest event on television in the country every year. Every aspect of her performance, the song she was singing, the wardrobe, the background dances, what they look like, what their hair would be, their dance steps, this was all authorized and signed off for by at least one white person. And I'm my wife. Thank you. Right on. Right on. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. May I be hurt? Yes, ma'am. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, Your uh, line is distorting a little bit. I'm not sure if you're too close to the microphone or uh, what have you, but it's distorting a little bit. Let's try it again. May I be heard now? Uh, it, it almost sounds like your volume is up a little too, like the your uh, microphone volume is up a little high. Maybe if you turn it down or if you lower your voice, that might that might help one of the two. Okay. How about now? Oh, much better. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I'm a first-time caller, so bear with me. Um, what I found interesting in the clips specifically was um, the interview with Mayor Knowles. Um, he used she at one point when he was referring to the Department of Justice and how they were going back and forth. And um, I suspect it might have something to do with how people or white people like to refer to President Obama instead of the office that he holds. So um, I think that was something that was interesting. Um, another point was, uh, I think Professor Reed, it was interesting when he stated that um, the damages were racialized, but the solution didn't need to be. 
and I thought that was illogical. Um, it, if one thing is racialized, why not target the solution exactly the same way the damages were? Um, I just think that's another example of kind of the deception. Um, and I think that was all I had. I'll meet myself. Awesome. Grand to hear from first time caller. I hope you'll uh, participate more. Uh, great points. Um, yeah, that standard, even even when they were talking about all that, the racism that's being done during housing, paying attention to racialized. Uh, we had Beryl Satter on the program where she talked about uh, how this was done in Chicago. And she said this was terrorism. What was done to black people to deliberately keep them from having adequate housing and piling them up in just like the pink houses in New York where a car girl was gunned down where you don't have adequate fire protection, don't have fire exits, uh, you don't have hydrants and what have you and black people just burning up and total extortion rents where they're paying like triple and quadruple what the property is worth. This is a white woman. She said this is terrorism. Call it what it is, not racialized policies. Uh, and then the same thing that you all have been pointing out, nobody takes this position when they're talking about Japanese internment and saying, oh, well, we'll just do a general policy that will help everybody. Certainly nobody takes that position when we talk about what happened to so-called Jews and saying, oh, well, we'll do something that just will help everyone universally. They don't take that position. They go specifically to something to help the people who were deliberately harmed, terrorized. Black people, we can't take that approach. Extremely important. Uh, other folks who dialed in that we haven't heard from, feel free. Hello, hello. I thought I might have heard two people. It sounded like two uh, females. Uh, hello. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Okay, um, good evening, everyone. Um, my wonderful comments. Um, I just had a few things. One about the Super Bowl, definite workplace racism. With the game, the black guy, the black man is fabulous, but all they talk about is the white guy. The Super Bowl, the halftime performance, white guy was supposed to be the lead, but of course the non-white people did all the work. You know, you can say whatever else you want about that. Um, in Flint, there's a university nearby, and these students haven't complained about their water, and they have housing. So I don't understand that. To me, that's weird. I'm thinking their water may be clean. And for some reason, the residents cannot get to the university, which seems to be near downtown Flint, to at least take showers because every school has a rec center with a gym and they have housing on campus. So, And these students aren't complaining about the water. I don't know. Something about that is fishy to me. And um, I guess that's all I have to say right now. <laughs> I forgot my last thought. Thank you. What's the name of the university uh, in Flint or near Flint? University of Michigan Flint campus. Hmm. All right. Cool. And I mean, I just think that that's weird. Because students complain about everything. I know. <laughs> Amen. Appreciate that. Good to know. Uh, that is, I, I would agree, that is suspicious if nothing is wrong with their water. Um, and I would just add those universities, those institutions, uh, they tend to be grounds of research and study. Some of the uh, accomplices in all this might be there because they tend to pile up white people that all they do is sit around and do experiments and what have you. Um, any folks that uh, have a hand up that we haven't heard from yet, uh, feel free to chime in. You should be with us. Hello. 
Yes, ma'am. Uh, hello? Okay, I'm sorry. I remember one, the last thing I wanted to say. Um, a few of the clips talked about um, students and their problems. There was another clip I saw, I guess, at a charter school in New York. There was a, looked like a white lady. She was reprimanding a little black child for not knowing how to count or something. And I mean, it was just, she ripped up the child's paper and told her to go in the corner. And I, I teach, and that's what I plan to do, I guess, for a living. And I, but I teach grown people, so I'm rough with them. Not tearing up their papers, but I am, I believe, a little rough. It was just totally out of control, and knowing that a lot of those charter schools have a lot of African-American students, um, that's just something we want to be wary about, because she's still there, and they call her an excellent teacher, and blah, 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 wonderful job, so just be wary of that. I saw that in the uh, New York Times. I believe yes. somebody said white women are at the center of what they call the prison or the school-to-prison pipeline. I think somebody said that, and, you know, <laughs> one of our guests said that I was talking crazy or what have you. But, anywho, uh, M1, were you uh, ready to comment? Oh, oh yes. Uh, I just want to uh, strictly focus on policing and and what's been happening this week. Uh, Officer Peeliang has, number one, uh, cops have flashlights, so there's no reason he couldn't turn his on. And while I will agree, there were people who were complaining there were, there were Asian Americans that were complaining that this is racism because a white cop wouldn't be treated that way. That is true. You know, we can go through the litany of lists, but that does not excuse the crime of what he did. And like I said, I do, I do love how the people who put this together. I said, found a uh, Chinese judge, so uh, that you couldn't really say the deck was, so that you really couldn't say that people were being against him because of his ethnicity. And now his white partner, who was with him at the time, he, too, was dismissed from the force, but since he was never charged with a crime, I'm pretty sure he will get another job as a law enforcement officer or even another city civil servant job. You know, he's in the clear. Now, what? The whole brouhaha, the whole controversy over Beyonce's formation. The, the white female who was mad that she didn't bring any white girls on stage. All of the pro-police people, Rudy Giuliani, others, saying that this song is an attack on police. It's she praises Black Lives Matter. She praises Black Panthers who harm police. 
Now, while all there was one thing that was left out this week. Uh, are you, is any, is anyone here aware that four cops were killed this week? I don't know the total number I did see there. I believe it was a black officer, uh, in Georgia. Yes, uh, he was was the last one. Okay. Yes, he was the last one that was shot. Mm -hmm. There were two in Maryland. There was one in Oregon the day before Super Bowl. And, and there were, yeah, and there were a couple in January. Now, all the people that were attacking Beyonce and saying that this was an attack on police, not a single one of them thought up the fact that eight cops have been killed in January for this week. And it goes to what I always said, what I've been saying for over a year now. All of these cop killers were white. The black cop, he was killed by a white male, female couple. The other seven cops, all killed by white men. That was not in anybody's discussion. That was not brought up by the usual CNN analysts, the usual Fox News analysts, none of them. But but people decided that somehow a song by a black R&B singer it's causing a problem with police. Not white men running around and one white woman running around killing cops. No, that's not a problem. Okay. Just her song. And that to me was the most interesting. Even though that should have been the most talked about thing this week. The amount of cops that have been killed, it wasn't. Because we all know when it's Shannon Miles, it's Mally Brindley, we we had these how many how many days do we have to hear talk about what those black what those black men did to those cops that they're engaging in war on cops. And here you can have four cops killed in one week. Silent. And that's all I have to say. The uh, the report, or at least the black male that was killed down in Georgia, I did not see uh, massive uh, attention or outrage uh, on that myself. Uh, I only saw it in two spots. I saw it on a local uh, Georgia affiliate where they were talking about it, and it was brought up on uh, Bill Maher's show last night because Killer Mike was on. He's a black male, uh, and he's I believe, was born uh, in Georgia. Uh, but the local news affiliate in Georgia that I saw, the interesting thing was that they talked about it. Uh, I would have to go back to give you the exact words, but they were talking about it as though 
uh, he did something incorrect, like he didn't follow procedure, like they were saying uh, that this was a dangerous situation and people, the officers were already informed, you know, that there was a shootout in process and the suspects were armed and all that. So he knew it was dangerous and, you know, he might not have, you know, done everything he needed to, you know, make sure that he was safe. And, you know, he ended up being shot and killed, which is that is strange in and of itself. Like I never hear anything that suggests when it's an officer that's been killed that suggests that, you know, they did something wrong, that this was, you know, their own doing for not following procedure or not following protocol. Like, generally, it is very heavy on the person who is supposed to get all, like, 110% of the blame is the shooter. Whoever the criminal was, the suspect, it is all on them and praise to the officer and let's, you know, take care of their children and family and scholarships and all that. And, and that was not what I heard from this local uh, affiliate. Oh, and also... Three months after, by police officer, Derek Stafford, accused of killing that little white boy, wounding his dad, still in prison. Without his half million dollars, I'm sure. Uh, Other folks that we have not heard from uh feel free if we haven't heard from you can i be heard yes sir uh yes uh i have uh three things this week uh i'll first start off uh uh under the uh people activity entertainment uh Mr. Goodright uh, himself, uh, the quarterback uh, from the Denver Broncos, Tate Manning, back to the incident uh, of sexual misconduct that he was involved with as a college student. Uh, There were some additional uh, uh, information. Most of of the information uh, was sealed to protect his image and his father's image. Uh, They went through extensive means of doing that to where something is still sealed today involving the white female that that he, quote-unquote, sexually uh, 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 mishandled, Uh, to whereas it was suggested uh, for her to blame this sexual conduct on a black male that was in the uh, area at the same time, uh, uh, which is not unusual on, on, on my behalf as far as that concerned, that, that, that they would, you know, white people always assign a black person to, uh, to use, uh, as Miss Pam says, as a scapegoat. Uh, for their uh, many tra- uh, trans uh, evil transactions, uh, two Florida two Florida incidents. Uh, it's been kind of like, in my view, unless somebody could tell me otherwise, kept uh, very low press on it. Uh, with the Bethune Cookman University, uh, there's been about seven students who've been uh, injured in shootings. Uh, over the past year on the campus. Uh, basically, the reason why I'm, I'm bringing this up is 
is anti-blackness is a reaction slash result of the system of racism and white supremacy. Uh, Spike Lee brought it out in the movie that he made years ago on uh, quote-unquote black college life uh, when, with the incident where the, the two uh, groups of black people uh, young people that were in college versus the people, the non-white black people in the in the town where the the historical black college is at, where they were kind of like uh, uh, about to uh, get into it violently, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, apparently, that is a real uh, occurrence that takes place. Uh, it's happening uh, at uh, Bethune Cookman. Uh, university in a uh, violent way with uh, with with guns. Uh, last but not least, down here in South Florida, uh, there have been a uh, effort by uh, some black people to uh, serve as uh, a uh, support group that will go to the school board basically to uh, attempt to get the things that, such as resources to uh, to uh, make uh, schools in the area where black people stay at a lot better. The organization is called Eye Care, and it's been a back and forth uh, lately on that issue. Uh, the school board is basically is headed by a uh, non-white, non-black male. Uh, I believe is from the island of Cuba, and the mayor is—I'm not sure if he's a white person or not, but nevertheless, his primary language is Spanish. He's from Cuba, also. Uh, where they uh, have been uh, in the normal shenanigans that take place down here of of making things very difficult, very bad for uh, public schools that are in the areas where most of our children are concentrated at, uh, to whereas they are were in the process without informing black people and uh, it's the organization that I was mentioning about, it's called iCare, that they were going to uh, place charter schools that would usurp the population from the schools that are already in the area, which is iCare is attempting to, to support. And uh, they were attempting to do it without, without the input of this organization. Uh, so it's just some of the, the uh, normal shenanigans that take place all over the world when it comes to uh, uh, people who uh, don't think that they have to uh, respect black people in any way. And uh, so uh, even, if, even if those who are vigilant on trying to better the situation, and uh, so uh, just uh, just reporting on that uh, to uh, let people know what's going on in South Florida. Thank you. Yes, sir. 
Uh, any other folks that have a hand up that we haven't heard from? We have about 10 minutes until we get to uh, workplace racism. Uh, you should go now if we haven't heard from you. Can I be heard? Can you hear me? May I be heard? Oh, heard two black females. Uh, let's get 8910 first. Hi, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Renegade. I'm new to your program. This is my first time ever listening to a live program. Um, I've been listening to many, many archives of your program and learning about Needley Fuller's work and Dr. Francis Cress Wilson's work. I'm ashamed to say I didn't know of any of this work or your program until just a few months ago, thanks to my husband introducing me to the facts of racism, white supremacy as a global system. So I greatly appreciate the work you're doing. I understand you've been doing this program for seven years, and I think that's amazing. And I thank you for doing it. And I just wanted to make a comment about something because I became more aware and conscious of racism, white supremacy because of my children and my husband's experience. I'm a black team on myself as well. But the fact that my children would come home and tell me that they wanted to be white, my eyes were open. My eyes were wide open that this is a system that is causing severe harm. And my husband, as a black male, experiencing the severe, more severe repercussions of the system as compared to myself. So I'm becoming awake to it. So I appreciate all the news you've shared with us this evening. And one of the things that really impressed me, as I, as I pointed out, I'm becoming more aware of the system because of my children, were the comments uh, that you shared from the young men, I believe it was, in Texas A&M, where they uh, suffered from, from the, being told they were niggers. And I thought very interesting that the president, I believe it was reported, of the, this institution, he didn't apologize. In fact, if I heard correctly, he did not apologize for what those students said. He apologized for the bad feelings or the emotions that the students experienced. I found that very interesting. No apologies for what they said, but apologized if they felt bad. That's what I believe I heard in that report. And then the response of one of those young men, who I believe the report indicated that he was a veterinarian student, and I believe the young man said, he thought that was good, that the response by the president was appropriate. I believe it was completely incorrect what the president, his response, and that the young man felt his response was correct. And that brings to mind the fact that we have not been taught, I myself, by my parents, uh, to, to no fault of their own, but not been taught what racism is really like. And I believe this young man uh, exemplified that, that he accepted this, this uh, incorrect response from the president. And so one of the things I would ask um, Mr. Renegade, as I am new to your program, I know this is really a comment session, um, is that from your experience and having had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Francis Cresswell and Mr. Neely Fuller so many times on your program and privately, what, what if there's any bit of insight you can share on, on what they suggest that we do to teach our children about the system, especially our young people, so they understand it much better. Again, I thank you so much. 
Oh, for sure. New callers, grand to hear from you. Thank you to uh, your husband for introducing you to uh, the content. And I can just say quickly, I said to my mom, I said the exact same thing, that I wanted to be white. I remember saying it. I think I was four years old. I remember being in the kitchen and telling my mom that uh, explicitly, like it's burned in my, uh, burned in my memory. Sorry for the metaphor, but it's, uh, I remember it vividly. Uh, the suggestion that I think, and I think they, that question has been asked of them uh, in the archives, uh, Dr. Welsing and Mr. Fuller, about how you uh, present this uh, information. I know Mr. Fuller has said pretty consistently uh, to just be honest, like to not, uh, I think he encourages not proselytizing to children, like not trying to force it on them and, you know, demand that they're going to talk about uh, racism and be focused on this. Uh, he says to just as they have questions, to be honest, to not lie to them, uh, to tell the truth and explain as they ask questions and to give it to them in what they call an age appropriate manner uh, where they can grasp what's being said. I, I will definitely say, and I think Dr. Welsing emphasized this as well, uh, that children, uh, their minds, they can understand a lot and especially with racism. And I think we've had many, many black parents uh, down through the years uh, who have shared that their children, uh, they are seeing things. They're seeing things that are happening on the news. They're hearing us when we're having, you know, conversations. They're hearing things that are uh, being brought up at school. Uh, as you, you said from your child, they are processing the logic of being in a system of white supremacy and being a black child. So uh, I would say definitely respect the fact that they can understand probably a lot more than we frequently give uh, them credit for in terms of, of their uh, ability to reason and, and, and grasp what we think of as being really complex and this is so difficult, they can understand it. Uh, so I would just say be honest uh, if they have questions and encourage them to, to ask questions. Uh, I think back to myself when you know they say that they want to be white. Why? That can be a, a incredible opportunity to just discourse with your child, not in an angry way, but just to, to understand what's happening to them, what they're seeing, what they're feeling, what they're experiencing. Uh, that has, you know, led them to that conclusion and to just talk to them about that, to present them information. Uh, one of the things that I consistently encourage, I don't know the age of your children, but I tell as many black parents as possible, there are so many uh, news clips, news items that are happening every week involving black children of all ages. We, the report got mentioned of what happened uh, in New York. Uh, there was a report that you just mentioned what happened to these young uh, high school students down in Texas. There was a different report in Texas. Uh, I was a black student. He was on the basketball team. He came out and someone had spray painted a swastika on his vehicle and the word nigger. Uh, there was a different the report that I think I played about the basketball team where the white coach said that the uh, white students were afraid of the black students and made them touch them. I mean, there's tons of them. I would try to find all of the ones where it's, uh, a children, a black child that's about the same age as my child, show them those reports. I think that's an excellent way of kind of putting it, what I say, putting it on their level. So this is not racism where we're talking it's happening to an adult or workplace racism. This is, this could have been you. This is someone the same age as you are, black male child, black female child, so that you can have these type of dialogues and you can offer them strategies if this type of thing happens to you, if something happens at school, if another student says something, if a teacher says something, 
this is how I would like you to handle this situation so that you can already give them some codes for how to deal with this. This is the way that we want you to handle it. Let us know or what you want them to say, what not to say, all of that. Those are some of the things that I encourage. But just being honest, and you can point things out all the time. I mean, we are unfortunately, we're in an environment that is saturated with white supremacy, so you can just honestly point that out. I don't know how much access they have to television. I would definitely encourage minimizing that, but if they're watching... Absolutely. If they're watching any content or what have you, point things out. Uh, Again, you don't have to be really dogmatic and, you know, jumping up and down about it, but just you can point things out. You can ask questions as you're seeing things. And I think many of the parents that we've had on the program, they have been able to attest that frequently their children are seeing the same content. They're seeing the same white supremacy messaging, even if they don't have the vocabulary to articulate it. They grasp what's happening. They understand it. And I suspect seeing some of that is probably what's motivating them to get to that conclusion where I wish I was a white person or however they phrased it to you. Those are some of the things that I think I can probably uh, probably go through the archives and pick out some of the content where we've had black parents on to talk about having some of these conversations with their children and even some of the guests that we've had on that have offered strategies for the same thing because we've done quite a bit of that, I think, over the years. Probably need to do more. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Renegade. Um, my children are four and seven, and I appreciate um, the insights you just shared. And the fact that you, too, went through that phase and, and look at you now, you're doing such a great service and helping us to build up uh, black self-respect and to uh, make sure we impart that to our children. So I'll do that and I absolutely continue to listen. Um, I think your program is incredibly constructive and I'm just sorry I didn't become aware of it earlier so I could have learned directly from uh, Dr. Cress Wilson. So thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Uh, just drop me an email and I'll, I'll try and dig out some of the, the content that we've done before and shoot it your way. You or your husband, whomever until justice at gmail.com. Absolutely. I know it. I've been listening oh. to many of your programs. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For sure. Uh, was there another female caller who uh, we hadn't heard from who was going to comment? I got the caller in Canada too. The, was there another female caller that was going to comment? Can I be yes, heard? It's- oh, there was a, uh, We'll take the, the first female caller that I think that spoke up that said, yes, can I be heard? Yes. Oh. Um, it, it, go on, go ahead. No, no, I can wait, really. That's Karma. Oh. Karma says she'll yield. The other female? Oh, um, greetings, guys. Um, this is a first-time caller, another first-time caller out of Colorado. Um, I've been listening for... Um, over a year, um, just really appreciate the work that you are doing um, with the program and turning me on to the work of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing and Mr. Neely Fuller Jr. Um, and thanks to you, in large part, I was able to attend um, Dr. Welsing's final Welsing Institute at Howard University in December of 2015. Um, and uh, I'm a little nervous, but I just wanted to to make a comment about when the subject of uh, a piece about reparations came up, black people and how it's always um, this, the people, the Semites of the Jewish religion are always mentioned and how they receive reparations. And I did some reading on that um, after listening to one of Dr. Walsing's lectures and one of the comments that really stood out to me in the reading about how they received reparations is they said um, specifically 
that they wanted reparations so that the murderers should not be the inheritors, like should not, you know, benefit financially from their torture and their murder. Um, But it seems to me that the whole entire system of racism, white supremacy is founded specifically on the premise that white people should be the inheritors and the profiteers from the torture, the destruction, the rape, the mutilation of black people. So even though I, I hope, you know, that someday we can receive justice, um, just coming to grips with the reality that that is one of the foundational aspects of the system, I don't see it happening. So that's all I had for right now, and um, I'll mute my line. But thanks, Gus. Good to hear from you. Lots of first-time callers. That is grand. Karma, uh, were you going to participate? Um, yes. Thank you. Good, good evening to uh, uh, you guys. Good evening to all the other callers. And just in case I don't say it, Gus, you have made such a difference in my life. I mean, you, you have given me such clarity. And I have used every bit of my will to push that clarity out into my community and I really think I'm feeling something, but I, I don't think it's just here. I, I think, what did you have three callers who'd never called in before tonight? I just, um, I just want to let you know that you have changed my life and I have tried to change other people's lives. And I really think that it's making a difference. I mean, things that I see going on around me that simply are not going on just yet in the rest of the world. So I wanted to make sure I, Thank you for that because you have, it's seminal. You've done an incredible thing. You really have. And my community, even though they don't know it yet because I haven't told them, they thank you too. Um, what I was looking at was, um, oh, I was noticing with all the politics that's on, on the news and everything, you notice, you hear about the Democrats and you hear about the Republicans, but you never, ever hear about the Tea Party anymore. They've, now that President Obama is in his last year, all references to the Tea Party have stopped. He was the he was the impetus for the Tea Party. He is what sustained the Tea Party. He is he was he was what generated the creation of the Tea Party. And so, you know, when you started talking about searching for the N word, I realized that the new word. I mean, they've been saying it a lot, but now with Donald Trump, they they love Donald Trump because he is he doesn't worry about being politically correct. And my observation is that the whole thing about politically correct is one thing. They can't say nigger anymore. They just cannot say They can't say it. I mean, you know, listen, you come over here, you say it to me, we'll go over here and we'll take care of that. They know they just can't say nigger anymore. But Donald Trump, he's bringing it back. I think I don't think it's just, you know, you search the N-word and all of these things happen. I think that Donald Trump is giving them leave to be politically what do they call it? Incorrect. And they are going around and they're just getting ready to use the N-word because that word was taken from, I believe, that's the only thing that politically incorrect means. Um, and then I'll say when you, when you had the news clip about uh, 
Trayvon Rice's, you know, family being getting an ambulance bill. That reminded me of one of the, the most, one of, just one of the most disturbing things I had ever heard in my child. They said, in my childhood, they said, when, if you are executed in China, if you are executed, then the, the state shoots you in the head and they bill your family for the bullet. And, and that always stuck with me from childhood. I heard it in the movie. And when you said that about Tamir Rice, it reminded me of that. And I think those were my, oh, oh, the only thing that happened to me, I guess just happened. I live very far out in the middle where I live in a place that's rural, you know, there's no buildings. There's just a stop sign in the middle of nowhere. So I met a neighbor at the stop sign and we pulled over to talk. And uh, not even a couple of minutes later, a sheriff's car comes by. He says, oh, was that a call that there were, you know, people were arguing here. Obviously, you're not arguing. See you later. Bye. 30 seconds later, here comes another sheriff's car from the north. And then they make a turn. Then 30 seconds after that, here comes another sheriff's car. All I did was pull over on the side of the road and start talking to my neighbor. Three sheriff's cars in two minutes. So. I just wanted to, I'm, I'm, I'm taking care of that with the sheriff and some people. So anyway, that's all I had to share for this week. And thank you so much. Wow. You are some kind of a dangerous, potentially terroristic person to require all of that uh, enforcement attention. Wow. <laughs> Watch out uh, for karma if you are in the Texas area. Wow. Hope you are staying safe. That's nothing to you know, joke about. That's serious. Um, you can let us know the fallout from that uh, once you deal with that, have your, your dialogue with them. Uh, I was I was serious. I think I said I was going to get our caller uh, in Canada. I did see you on the, the switchboard. I had your line open, but there were so many uh, female callers. I wanted to make sure I got them first. But it uh, looks like he might have uh, disconnected. Uh, if that is the case, we will go ahead and transition to workplace uh, racism because I don't see you uh, on the line. Yeah, not seeing our caller in Canada. Um, workplace racism, uh, folks would like to participate. Uh, the number is 641-715-3640 and the code 564-943-POUND. Uh, feel free to participate. Again, thanks to all of the new callers. Grand to hear from everybody. And again, folks, you should not feel nervous. We're just victims. Uh, nobody, you know, <laughs> shouldn't be thinking anything other. I'm a victim of racism. Coming to share my views and thoughts with other victims of racism. Nothing to be uh, nervous, nervous, uh, or feeling, you know, uncomfortable about. Uh, before I get to the callers, there was one person who uh, wrote in. Uh, they had commentary on workplace racism that they wanted to share. And uh, another caller in the Florida area seems like we have gotten more folks uh, from that area. Uh, his commentary was, uh, I am a, let's see, I'm from North Florida. I've been a practicing retail pharmacist for 21 years. My current employer is a Florida-based grocery chain. Since graduating, I've been a pharmacy man- manager for this chain from 1996 to 2000 I briefly worked as the district pharmacy manager from January to June 2000 when the general merchandise manager told me that my salary was substantially lower than the other two white district managers in my area while I managed more 
urban locations in total, I left the company. I joined a large nationwide chain in 2000 and worked in various pharmacy manager positions from 2001 until 2008. In 2008, I decided to... I decided to go into drugstore management. I eventually relocated to the uh, D.C., Maryland, Virginia area and worked as a store manager from 2010 to 2014. Workplace challenges and lack of clarity led me to resigning, returning to northeast Florida, and eventually returning to the grocery store chain in 2015. So upon my return, I was rehired as a staff pharmacist. My employer has gone through several bankruptcies and restructuring much of the original upper echelon has been replaced my manager was a non-white female i had no problem with her at all though i remained extremely wary of the female white technician very smart they both recently reassigned they were both recently reassigned as opposed to offering asking me about the vacant pharmacy manager position the district manager replaces the supervisor with a white female returning from family and medical leave. The white female, although a manager at a store 30 miles from her home, has a total of four years in practice. I literally have 16 years management experience from pharmacy, uh, pharmacy manager, briefly district manager, and drugstore manager. However, thanks to the cows, the work of Mr. Neely Fuller Jr., and, of course, the ancestor, Dr. Francis Crest Welsing, I am getting more clarity. Caller in the Florida area. I think that's something that we have touched on. It's almost cliche. If you are a black person, it does not matter your expertise, your level of training, the number of degrees you have. We are still in a system of white supremacy, sometimes doing exemplary work. It's just further cause for you to be harmed and mistreated. I'm not saying that to discourage anyone uh, from doing phenomenal work. You want to go out and do uh, as much as you ca uh, possibly can. I think you should do your best. That's what Dr. Francis Cress Welsing would, uh, would encourage. But just to make sure that we don't have it in mind that doing our best is going to warrant white people saying congratulations. Good job. As was stated earlier, you are still just a nigger. Uh, folks have commentary on workplace racism. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, this is uh, Ross once again. Um, <laughs> it just seems to be like uh, picking up now, picking up uh, speed. But uh, I had an interesting situation happen. Uh, not to me. It was actually one of my coworkers. Um, she was recently terminated. And um, I just – actually, weirdly enough, I, I believe I brought this up last night when we were doing the book study club about uh, about – the way white people will use black people up. It was a section in the book where they talked about um, the one of the slave owners waiting uh, basically till he used the slaves up and they were basically worth nothing before he's quote-unquote freed them. And I discussed um, how white people will, the modern-day version of that is how white people will have black people work on the job and they know that they're going to fire you. But instead of telling you... Um, and saving you the, the wasted um, money spent on the on the uh, train fare or however you get to and from your job and uh, wasting your time. They'll have you work the whole day and then tell you at the end of the day you're terminated. Um, and it just goes back to this incident. Uh, she was let go literally at the end of the day. And um, 
I was really kind of shocked because she's been there for a while, but hey, it happens. She just happened to be one of the people that I dealt with quite regularly there, so I got used to seeing her around. But um, anyway, what happened was they had a new uh, white guy who started working there, and her and uh, another black female were training this white guy. So they went around at one point and introduced him to everyone because they were supposed to, that white person was supposed to actually join their team was the way it was presented. And what they do is basically they do like, um, like uh, provide a concierge work. So if someone's having trouble finding a doctor that specifically takes our insurance, they'll be able to help them find that doctor without a problem and, and make sure that the list of uh, doctors they, that they present are doctors that the person can use that are in the network. So um, basically they were training this new white guy. And the day that she was terminated uh, was the day that she literally trained him the whole week. Um, she introduced him to everyone. She trained him throughout that day. They let her go at the end of the day, and the white guy she trained was the guy who took her place. And I just found that uh, very fascinating, but not surprising. This is something I've seen happen before. And um, what I, from what I understand, she was uh, let go because she had issues with coming in late. I did see her arrive late on a couple of occasions, but I didn't know the situation was that acute for her. Um, so I guess in, in that sense, I don't know. If I, I would say that I guess if that's true, because I can't say I know it for a fact is true. Um, but if that is true, then I can say, that, well, I guess the company was justified in making that decision. But it's how they went about it. They had to train the guy. You know, they seem to everyone seems to have been getting along well. He was joining the team, quote unquote, um, rhetorical ethic once again with, of white people, Dr. Martin Barney, and um, and you know, they had to train them. And then this is a guy who now has her job. So, hey, it's just something to think about. And thanks for, thanks for taking my call. Absolutely. I think that's almost like a racist cliche, having black people uh, train the person that's going to replace them, even if that person has less experience or is not qualified or whatever the case may be. I mean, that's almost just, I mean, it's pitiful how long racists have been uh pulling that over uh, and doing that. Uh, the one thing that I would say, I know I've heard Mr. Fuller talk about this consistently in terms of having uh, a code for how you deal with the job, and it's a lot of things that can go into that, where he talks about even transportation getting to and from work. Uh, if you live in an environment where it snows, I know that's the case for a lot of people, uh, and certainly when you have inclement weather, that can make it difficult for you to get to work, and you might even be late, or if you depend on public transportation, that can throw your schedule off. If you know the train is not running on schedule or the bus is not running uh, on schedule and you end up uh, being late or you miss it or something like that, that all of those type of things uh, need to be factored in. Uh, to your workplace decision. How far away from your job do you live? If you have vehicle problems, is that going to impact you being able to get to uh, and from work on time? Because uh, racists, they are very good at not being uniform with how they enforce policy and procedure, where a white person, they can show up late every day, five times a week. I just saw a report today where a white person had not shown up to work for years, and that wasn't even the, the why they were reporting this. They were reporting this because no one noticed until this person got some sort of award for quality work, and then it was, dang, have y'all seen Jack? Where's Jack? <laughs> this person hadn't even shown up for years, not a day, not two days, not even one year, like several years, and they're being awarded. That type of thing happens 
all the time. I have had white people tell me where they had white people who were not even showing up to the job. They had just figured out a way to manipulate the system so that they could put in the hours that they work, even though they weren't there. So they're getting paid, even though they are not actually there doing any work. They're out frolicking, shopping, practicing racism, whatever they do. Uh, So just to keep that sort of thing in mind, and I would even say try to have a code uh, where you're not just getting to work on time, you maybe get there, you know, 10 minutes early. That's kind of just in your schedule uh, so that you're taking things away that can be used against you uh, on the job. That should be something that you put in. And I think even Mr. Fay, if you want to hear something to just <laughs> have you uh, have you stunned, I think Mr. Fuller, he talked about working in a government job, no less. I think he worked there for almost three decades. It might have been a little bit more. He said he was never late. And did not did not miss a day of work for 30 years. And I think he talked about this on, I think it was 2012 when his visit, he talked about this. But, I mean, just uh, something to have in mind in terms of codifying that so that, hey, I'm going to reduce, uh, I'm going to really try to take away as many things as I can from them being able to use against me and come back and say, oh, you didn't do this, oh, you were here late, uh, to really make sure that you have uh, a strong code for how you're going to conduct yourself on the job. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Gus, can I say the prayer this evening? Yes, sir. Just remind me if I, in my victimization, forget. Thank you. Mm Mm-hmm. Other folks have commentary, suggestions, observations? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. If you could uh, speak up a little bit, that would be helpful. Can you hear me now? That is better. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. I just had about maybe two or three observations from this week. Uh, there was a meeting that took place, and I know the uh, supervisor, he likes to uh, make jokes. And the uh, the person in charge over him, the personnel lady, I guess she was going to let him make the joke. And in front of the whole uh, office of employees, he started by saying, like, he got cut off, right? But he started off by saying, you know, what what do uh, Ben Carson and uh, Hillary Clinton have in common? And then she, <laughs> the, the white lady, like, she 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 cut him off, like, like no, don't say it. You know, like, she got nervous, you know? And, um... You know, after that, like, I went to his office, you know, and I asked him, I said, hey, you know, what was that joke you were going to say? And he had to he had to think it up real quick because, you know, I guess maybe his memory might be getting a little bad or whatever because of the age. And he says, oh, yeah, it was going to be uh, um, what, what do Ben Carson and Hillary Clinton have in common? And I, I couldn't think of what the answer was, so he ended up saying, they both have a mustache or something like that. So, you know, that you know, like attacking is early in the morning. So the uh, second incident was uh, there was this white woman and she was, she likes to use that term rednecks. And uh, she would just, you know, um, like blabbering about that for some reason. And she said, you know what? I just can't stand rednecks, you know? And we have a lot of them here. And she's talking about going to this county and that county and, you know, my in-laws. And I was like, oh, really? So how how are your in-laws? 
And she says, you know, they're just really bad people. And, you know, I just can't stand racists, racist white people. You know, this is a white person herself, might I add. And uh, and she says, but oh, not me. I am impervious. That's, that's exactly how she said it. So, you know, that that doesn't mean that I shouldn't be uh, suspicious of her. So I guess she's trying to separate herself. You know, everybody but me. You know, that's a well-known cliche. And the last incident was I was in the break room eating my lunch. And I was coming back from the microwave. We have two microwaves that were, you know, equally efficient. And, you know, by description, one of them is black and one of them is white. So I'm thought like it was it was me and three other white people in the break room. So there's a, a white girl at one microwave and I'm leaving the other one. And the other white female sitting out eating her food says, Oh, which one of those microwaves work good or something and she says, I I know it's usually the white one that works better and then so <laughs> The other white girl, she says, oh, are you a racist? And then the other white girl says, no, I'm not. I'm not. And then, you know, the the old uh, white guy that's in there, he was, he was saying, oh, wow, why would you say that, you know? And, you know, so I'm just, I'm going back to my table about to sit down and eat. And she is just, like, panicking, like, I don't know what. And uh, <laughs> the the white guy says, oh, well, what do you got against black microwaves? And She's like, no, I have a black microwave at home. I was just talking about that, the appliance, not people. And she actually got drawn into what they set her up for. But obviously, that like they was behaving in that way because I was present. So the the white guy, you know, the old dude, looks towards me and say, "Wow, wow, blink." Uh, <laughs> And I, I didn't have nothing to do with it. I'll say, hey, why are you looking at me? Why am I topic of conversation? And he didn't answer the question. He was just saying, well, you know, uh, you know, she was just saying this and that. And and then he looked toward her and uh, he says, you know, he said it again. You know, what do you have against black microwaves? Just like a bunch of tackiness and clowning. So just to show you, like, they'll they'll say pretty much anything to give you or uh, to get you to respond emotionally. So that that was my analysis for the week. And that's all I have. Wow. <laughs> Quite insightful. Quite. Uh, just my quick thoughts. Uh, number one, uh, that last anecdote, I would say in particular, white people are not ignorant about racism. There is no right. way you can just hop into that sort of dialogue. You're talking about microwaves and, oh, I know the white one works better. And what do you have? There's no way you can tell me that you are confused or poorly informed, unaware, and all the other excuses that they dole out about racism and participate in something like that and even have somebody else come in and, you know, wow, what are you talking to a, a victim, a non-white person? Wow, what, what do you think about that, drawing you into it when it was them who started all this? That's something I've noted whites do uh, as well, where it'll be white people who have brought up uh, racism, but they will redirect to the black person, the non-white person, as though it's your responsibility. You're the one 
uh, who did this. And that's always outstanding when you can ask a question where you don't get sucked into responding because I've just concluded a lot of times that's what they want, as you said, to get you emotional, to get you riled up, making statements where you can just either sometimes nothing needs to be said. I've said that consistently or question. Always great if you have a question. And it sounds like you asked your question. He didn't even respond. Um, the I think the second uh, anecdote uh, that you shared about the white woman who's I guess always talking about uh, quote unquote rednecks that standard procedure as you as you stated uh, it's everybody else but me I am a cool white person I am the well meaning one you don't have to worry about me but there certainly are a lot of quote unquote rednecks racists here just not me that is standard as well great tactic that frequently is used to get us to lower our suspicion of that particular white person uh and i also i heard a smoke detector in the background uh, i think somebody you might need to get a new battery all want to make sure that we're safe uh we are under conditions of war so might, there it is again might need a new battery in your uh smoke detector uh the question, question. oh right on question go ahead for yes, the guy who, for the question for the fellow victim that just spoke uh, first i wanted to say man great great at you going back and asking um the guy hey i want you to finish telling me that joke oh man that was just brilliant um my question is i just wanted to know what area of the world are you in that's it oh you mean me yes uh florida thank you Fascinating. Cows has lots of folks down in Florida. I thought New York was one of our hot spots. I guess Florida is as well. Who knew? Um, if folks have uh, questions uh, or thoughts, or if you have your own commentary that you want to get in, uh, feel free. Uh, I'm trying to nab our female callers as well. Caller uh, in Michigan, did you have commentary you wanted to get in? May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, good evening, Gus, and to the callers and listeners. I wanted to just share. Uh, the tackiness and trashy behavior at the law firm that I've found myself uh, <laughs> working in. And I've only been there for two months. Um, and the last time I shared, um, I, I think I reported how uh, there was a, a white female that now was reporting to me. Um, well, that lasted all of a week. And she got fired on this past Wednesday. Um, since uh, that week, I, you know, they told me specifically, make sure you load her with work, um, keep her busy, and just, you know, delegate a lot of the things to her, a lot of work to her. And so I did that, and I found out that she was complaining just about the work that I was giving her. But uh, on Thursday, they uh, fired her. And um, I thought that was just interesting. Um, and they said that she was fired because I think they have a malpractice lawsuit that's getting ready to, that they're going to have to, um, uh, that that's hit the firm. So I think she had something to do with that. Um, so at any rate, uh, they fired her. So that was, that was interesting. And then on Thursday, they, uh, had a mandatory, it was mandatory, I thought that was inter interesting, a mandatory firm lunch. And um, it was at a, um, a place like five miles away from, from the office. 
And what I found absolutely <laughs> interesting again was we were supposed to meet at the place at 11 o'clock. They made sure everyone went. You cannot not attend. And it was a bar. I'm like, well, this is a lunch. Why are we going to a bar? Um, we got there, and when I looked at the menu, it was a half a page on the menu was appetizers, uh, not food, not really like lunch um, items, and seven pages of liquor, seven pages. So at 11 o'clock, they started drinking. Um, this is the entire firm that was uh, had to go to the lunch. And I'm just observing and looking like unbelievable. And I, I'm just really amazed at 11 o'clock. And so we stayed from 11 till about two o'clock and they're drinking and um, just engaging in the trashy and tacky behavior that they're engaging in. And um, then they say, well, we can't let everyone go home. So we got to go back to the office. So everyone goes back to the office. Um, everyone goes back to the office and I'm just saying, wow. So everybody, <laughs> they, they go, they go back to the office drunk. This is a law firm and they have clients they have to see. They're dealing with, you know, just cases and things that are important. And I'm just amazed. Um, another thing that I found that was interesting that day, as I was getting ready to head to the, um, location where we were having the quote unquote lunch. I was heading out to my car because I don't like to, you know, I'm just a loner. I don't deal with them. I don't like to really engage in conversation. So I was heading to my car. And as I was heading to my car, uh, the, the, one of the partners, she's the daughter of the, um, of the, of the head lawyer. And she's one of the uh, head lawyers also. But she was like, you know, come, come ride with me, ride with me. And she kind of just kind of like, forced me in a sense to ride with her. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to take this opportunity just to see, um, just to, you know, make observations and see, you know, where, where she's going to go with this. So I, I got in her car and to my surprise, um, there's only four other black females that work, or three other black females. I'm the fourth one. Um, and she had the other three females, black females in the car with her. So we get in the car. Um, again, it's only like five miles away from the office. Um, and the other three females, she has them wrapped around her finger. Like they are totally confused. They are, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of just, you know, interesting to see the, the, the way that they're wrapped around her finger. So I guess her getting me to write with them was their way of trying to recruit me, I guess, to be, you know, on, <laughs> I don't know. She, they were just trying to see, you know, how I fit in. Um, but I was quiet. I was just listening to them, um, gossip. They were gossiping. Um, and it was just interesting because again, uh, she insisted that I ride with them. Um, and then a joke was made like, oh yeah, you know, Sherry has all the black girls riding with her and, you know, it was just a big, you know, laugh. And she was like, oh yeah, you know, I gotta, I, I gotta stay down. That was her term. I just want to, I want to stay down. I didn't. And so that was her term. And, um, it was just interesting. Um, Thursday, Morning from 11 to 2, the entire firm goes out to quote-unquote lunch and get wasted. And then when we got back at 2, um, oh, another thing that I, uh, I observed as we were getting back to the office, 
Um, they weren't ready to leave, but they had to go back. Uh, and the lady that I, that I rode with, she was like, oh, I can't go in the office. I can't go in the office because one of the ladies we fired, her fiance is in there. He's doing uh, arbitration or whatever. He's an attorney too. So she's like, I can't see him because it's going to just, you know, cause a scene. So she went into the, um, the office in the, in the back door. And so she went into the office and I had to go in maybe 15 minutes later into the office that she snuck in, so to speak. And when I went in there, the lights were off, everybody was gone. And so one of the, um, one of my coworkers, I'm a white guy, he was like, yeah, they all went back out to go finish drinking. So <laughs> they um, basically just dropped off some of us and went back to the bar to go drink. So again, it was just absolutely just amazing to see um, it's an office full of drunks, and I'll mute my line. Wow! Did they, when it was required, you mandatory participation at the, uh, you know, let's let's get intoxicated together. Were they picking up the tab, or did you have to spend out of pocket for this? Oh no, they definitely picked up the tab. Okay. They um, made sure that, uh, you know, we we didn't have to pay for anything. And it was funny because when it was time to go, there was one. One younger white uh, male, he's, he's about 22. Um, he wanted to drink more and more and more. And they was like, oh, you know, they closed the tab. But I noticed that uh, later that afternoon, he went, but he snuck back out. I don't even know if they snuck out, but he was gone too. <laughs> it was like, you know, after they dropped those of us that are, you know, just, I guess, square or <laughs> not into it, they dropped us back off at the office. And then they went back out to go drink, and he was one of them that was gone. But they covered the tab completely, so it was interesting. Wow. Were you uh, pressured to consume, uh, quote-unquote, spirits? Well, yeah, what they do is um, <laughs> the, the one of the guys that's like one of the uh, head attorneys, he <laughs> orders around for everyone. And I'm like, well, I don't drink. I'm not interested in drinking. Um, and so I always say, get me a virgin daiquiri. You can get me a virgin daiquiri. So, yeah, it was a couple jokes made about, oh, you're still new, you know, lighten up. And I'm like, well, you know, I just don't drink. It's 11 o'clock. And so I noticed that that made them, you know, they definitely want to want to loosen me up or try to, you know, I'm, I think I was the only person that didn't drink. I was the only person that didn't drink. And they, they think it's because I'm new. It's just because, oh, after a while, you'll, you'll loosen up a little bit. And I'm just like, wow, this is how you guys function. This is, it was scary. It was really scary. I couldn't believe it. Um, but yeah. Wow. I think, uh, just, I think you were the one that shared before. Uh, might have been your previous place. Excuse me, I had to sneeze. Your previous, uh, the previous terrorists that you worked with, where they went and, or it might have been these same folks. I don't know, but some set of whites that you were working with, where they went out to a bar and tore up the place and had to compensate <clears throat> the proprietor for all the damage that they did uh, while they were out drinking. Wasn't that you? Yes, and this was the same firm. And mind you, this was. Um, in January, and it was one of the attorneys quit. So this was his going away party. Mm. Um, so this was last month. But yeah, we uh, the Christmas party. I shared about that. Um, that was the, you know the first encounter where they were you know getting drunk, and this was the attorney that decided to do the. They were doing the white elephant gift exchange, and he gave the black penis, and then and they were all drinking there. 
Um, in January, we had the going away party for the attorney that uh, quit. They tore up the bar, and now mid morning, eleven, they you know decide to have a mandatory lunch with no food and at a bar. <laughs> so yeah, I don't think I'll be there long. I'm looking. <laughs> Can I be heard? Oh, wait. Yes, sir. I was just, I was saying really quick, one thing that should be like a fundamental part of our workplace codification is we do not consume alcohol for any reason. Um, just to, whatever excuse you need to come up with, if it's my religious practices dictate that I don't, I'm, I have to be sober, I don't consume alcohol. If it's I've had people that I care about in my family who've had substance abuse issues, so supporting them, I'm sober, I don't consume any alcohol. Whatever it needs to be, be serious about that, unwavering. I know that can be very tough if you're around uh, them because I have been in that position. Uh, where, and it was I didn't even have anything where it was associated with racism or what have you. It was, I, I would almost say silly. It was at the time I was really, really into running and ran a lot, like running 25, 30 miles a week and drinking dehydrates you. So I couldn't do it and run that much. That was why I couldn't do it. And they were like pressuring me, like, come on, you got to drink. Come on, gosh, you got to drink. Let's get a shot. Let's get a shot. It's like, and I think I ended up having to just make up something where, you know what? No, I don't do anything. And that's just that. And I mean, it would be every single time being pressured, them getting an attitude about it. Just expect all of that. That is a part of the pack. I mean, and to be really serious about that because it's my experience to try to get you to do that so that they can get more information out of you, to get you to lower your suspicions, uh, to really be on your guard about that on the job around white people. Uh, Thomas in New York, you were going to comment? Um, yes, I was just. Drinking on the job is a huge part of, of their functioning. Um, the last two law firms I worked at, um, the, the you know jobs I had a few years ago, in particular, I had, we had a wine room. You know, I had to order at least five thousand dollars worth of wine a week. Cases would come in. I have to bring it to the room. I had to control of the key, lock it in the room, and they they would call it the library. You know, Thomas, can I get the key to the library? You know, hey, I can't say no to them. I get them the key. I mean, go back in about a week empty. Um, <laughs> I mean, and um, even uh, Roz told me at his job, you know, they got beer in the refrigerator. I mean, you could just sit there. They're selling health insurance, but you could drink beer in, in an office. You know, it's just uh, the amount of liquor that they go through is just huge. I mean, I, I don't I don't think um, any I've never seen I've known a lot of black alcoholics, including you know, my deceased father, and the way they drink and the amount of liquid, like the the um, the fineness of the liquor they drink as well, you know, they don't get the the, the, the stuff that uh, an average black wino might get. I mean, they're getting top-notch stuff, thousands of dollars for a bottle sometimes, and it's nothing to them. Just a um, huge aspect, and I'm, I'm glad this, you know, that she brought that up because... Um, it doesn't sound like she's in the New York area, and it's happening everywhere. And I wonder if it has something to do with that law. What law? 
um, because of the two jobs we have experienced this at um, with law firms. Oh, okay. working at a law firm. Gotcha. Well, I can um, I can just say that um, the last law firm I was just at, where it lasted all of a month, uh, the attorneys there they drunk a lot as well. I noticed like one attorney would come in drunk, um, and then at this firm, they that's just the norm. It's the norm. So, uh, and I and then there's one white lady. She is uh, she's she's a racist, and she says to me. Um, you know, well, actually, she said to me on Thursday, oh, you're so quiet. You make me nervous. You're so quiet. And so she was one of the ones who said, oh, did you get a drink? You know, the firm is paying for it. You don't have to worry about the coverage. So she was really because she, she tells me I'm too quiet and I make her nervous. But she was the main one just saying, you don't have to worry about the cover. They're going to pay for it. Um, did you order a drink? And so <laughs> I don't know. It's, 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 again, I know I know that I won't be there long. So it's just kind of a pit stop and, and while I'm still looking, but uh, definitely um, interesting. And the two law firms, they are heavy drinkers. Yeah, I wanted to chime in on the drinking, too, because uh, thanks for bringing that up, uh, Thomas. Um, yeah, my job, too, that was the first job I ever worked where I saw that they had beer in the refrigerator, and there's beer in there all the time, and it disappears rapidly. Um, also, some of the people in the job do keep, like, hard liquor um, in bottles in their offices or on their desks. And um, I know that they put up a few signs about drinking responsibly because there were quite a few people, all of them white, who tend to overdo it. And then I just heard some stories about um, different incidences before I started working there where um, certain people, you know, were just caught highly inebriated. So, um, yeah, I think that's a part of their functioning as far as the, the being drunk or even being high, because I know a lot of that, too, as far as the drug use with them, um, especially in, in law firm type of things. I was actually, I saw a couple of months back, they had um, a clip on uh, Drugs, Inc. on National Geographic where they were following people in the Wall Street area, and that included some lawyers that were into, like, um, Ativan and into cocaine. And um, so definitely, you know, the, the drug use thing, I think, is a part of their normal functioning. Um, so, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. But, yeah, it's got to be very codified about that. I don't mess around on the job. They know it, and that's just that. And I try to really stay away from um, off-the-job functions. I, it's funny, my coworker and I, you know, we talked about that because he's not into white folks either. He's um, of Haitian descent. And we had a conversation, and he said, we agreed on the fact that, hey, I barely could stand being around y'all on the work situation. So if you think I'm going to waste my time going to a, a company function to be around you, you know, in my personal time, it's crazy. You know, I separate work from, from, from personal time, and that's just the way I function. And him and I both, like, just had that kind of discussion. And um, it was just interesting to find somebody who um, thought in that manner, um, that codified manner, um, even though he doesn't really study racism or white supremacy, but we've had quite a few conversations. And um, I introduced him to uh, Dr. Welsing's um, book, which he actually bought. Um, I told him about the show. There's a couple of other uh, black folks that I've been able to have some really um, poignant conversations with that I was also able to introduced to the show as well. So, um, yeah, thanks again, Gus. And, oh, yeah, I had um, two, two older workplace racism stories, if it was okay, from my, from my younger years, I would say, that that's okay if no one else had anything else. Uh, let me double-check our female caller in the Bay Area, and then uh, if you want to give us your uh, 
older older experiences, that's fine too. Uh, sure, I'll wait. Bay, I think this is our black mother in the Bay Area. Did you have commentary you were going to add? Um, may I be heard? Oh, it's our young caller. My apologies. Yes, sir, we can hear you. Go ahead. Okay. Um, Greetings, Justin, to the rest of the callers. Um, in my art history class, like a couple of weeks ago, we were, uh, a question was asked, who has the power in art? So I shared my answer and said, everyone has the power in art as long as she has the potential and um, mindset to say that she has the power in art, then you have the power. So I was about to sooner, the teacher was like, well, beautifully spoken, and I was just stunned because she never said that to any of the other students in the class. And mind you, I was in that class period, I was the only black male in that class. So it just really stunned me because she only said that to me. So then she kept rewording what I was saying, and I had to tell her, no, that's not what I said. I said this. And then she was, she was like, oh, you use the word artist and everyone at the same time. So which are you referring to? And I said, I didn't say that. But then she just wrote down what she heard on the board, and I was just like, okay. But then later on, we were learning about this so-called hip-hop culture. And I disagree with that. Uh, I, yeah, it's just not... It's just not accurate because it's hip hop is really just a combination of things black people do as uh how do I put this? It's like a combination of things that black people do to express mainly their struggles as uh kidnapped people in the United States. Well, that's for some of it, but most of them now is just not nonsense and just profanity. But um anyway, um then we were uh, we were supposed to be talking about the history behind this hip hop, which consists of graffiti, DJing, mixing, scratching, uh, breakdancing, and um, rapping. That just from what I learned, and um, rapping usually originally came. It wasn't called rapping, but it originally came from Western Africa, and people would tell stories there with the drum and use it as a beat. But then in the Caribbean islands, um, they'll do the same thing just with mine. That's just for my research. And for this history behind this hip hop, um, we it had nothing to do with hip hop. It was just we just talked about the Great Migration, segregation in the South, and the differences and similarities between suburbs and the project. So this month has been a little nonsense in that class, and um, it wasn't nonsense, it was just interesting. But um, I came down to the conclusion that my teacher was doing that for Black History Month. She says she's not, but I still believe she does. She's doing it. But um, that's all I have to share. Thank you. Fascinating. That was going to be, that was what I was going to ask. Like, is she doing this now? Uh, is this supposed to be like the, the Black History Month uh, lesson uh, for you all? But you said she said explicitly that she's not, that this is just a lesson plan and it just happens that it's in February. This is not, this has nothing to do with Black History Month, right? Yeah. Hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. And this, you've talked about your situation before, and I guess in this art class, are you the only uh, Black student? Oh, no. There's no, okay. like a few more black females, but I'm the only black male. Okay. Wow. But it's still predominantly white students in the art class? Yes. 
I do not envy you, sir. <laughs> that sounds like uh, just an awful environment to be around. Lots of young uh, white children, uh, likely racists, uh, in California, no less, uh, talking uh, about hip-hop music and uh, black performance. Like, that just sounds uh, horrendous. Uh, and I'm sure these young children, uh, they probably listen to a lot of this music and what have you. It just uh, it sounds like a, a nauseating experience um, to deal with. Um, I don't know. Did any did any of your white classmates did they say anything that you thought was uh, significant or even racist? Um, no, not towards my comments. No. Okay. Okay. Fascinating. Excellent job. I would say also that's uh, extremely important. Black self respect in uh, being precise about what you said, and when the teacher, when she kept trying to twist around what you said and change it and put words in your mouth, quote unquote, just changing your words and not being accurate to your statement, outstanding to continue to correct her. This is what I said. You're not quoting me uh, correctly. This is what I said. That is outstanding. I know uh, just myself being a student that I didn't always have that that black self-respect to do that uh, as a student, even and as an older person. But I think that's hugely important. And that's something that you're going to see a lot over the course of your life uh, where you're talking to white people and you're trying to make a point, particularly if it's something serious where they are not accurately restating what you said and it'll generally be to your uh to your detriment where they twist around what you said uh and it's not just inaccurate it's inaccurate and it's going to be to your detriment so that is outstanding and i hope you can continue to do that just correct people this is what i said that's not correct this is what i said and give it to them again that is outstanding Always grand to hear from my young caller in the Bay Area. Definitely keep us uh, keep us updated. Uh, before I get Ross, you had your experience. Was there? Did we miss any uh, female callers who had something they were going to get in on workplace racism? Grand. I think we got everyone. Ross, if you want to give us your uh, experiences, you should be with us. All right. Thank you. I was thinking terrorists and training. This guy surrounded by terrorists and training. Um, but he's doing an awesome job. Um, <laughs> yes, um, my first one is from when I was 14 years old. This was the second job I had. I worked for the New York City Parks Department in Sunset Park, and they have a gigantic pool, um, like an Olympic-sized pool there. And the young workers that were my age, they gave us these uh, poker sticks that we would use to collect trash from around the pool and, and, and clean up the area. But um, also part of the job entailed uh, maintenance, I guess. So we would uh, have to paint different things, whether if, if it was a fence or um, do other sorts of uh, cleaning things, janitorial work. And for that entire summer, um, I worked, and there was this heavy set white guy with a mullet. And I didn't really like him. His aura just resonated very negatively to me from the very beginning. So I made it a point to really keep my distance. And for most of the summer, I was fairly successful at that. I only had minimal contact with him. But towards the end of the summer, um, I was forced to have more contact with him. I don't remember the exact circumstances, but I was forced to have more contact with him. And um, the last week, he had a job in which he wanted, they needed a, a, a fence painted, and they used an oil-based paint that would agitate my asthma. So the very first day I did it, but it didn't affect me as acutely. So I got through the day, but then the following day, which was the second to last day of um, the summer that I'll be working there, 
um, I told him, I said, well, this is agitating my asthma. I'm, I'm starting to wheeze. And um, I didn't want to, to, to paint. So I said, I can do something else. You know, if you want me to use the pulpit and clean around the pool, I can do that. If you need me to clean up the bathroom, whatever the case may be. But I said, I really can't be around that paint that's agitating my symptoms. And um, essentially, he just told me, well, this is what I need you to do. So if you're not going to do it, um, you'll have to go home. So I got really angry, and I, I had a very a horrible temper as, as a young person, and um, it carried me through some very negative things in my teen years. But at 14, this is, this is it. So when he says that to me, I basically told him to go screw himself uh, with an expletive instead. Um, and he was kind of shocked because I was so young, but I just had absolutely no respect for him. I didn't like him the entire summer. And as I ha was forced to work in closer proximity to him, I just realized he was a racist who basically didn't like young black males. So I didn't like him. And I guess my background being raised, listening to people like Dr. Ben and Dr. Clark, I really didn't like him once he exhibited racist behavior towards me. And I felt the, the highest expression of that racism in that moment was him basically trying to force me to continue to uh, paint this fence when I told him it was agitating my medical symptoms. So at that point, the gloves were off, and I basically told him to screw himself, and then I left. So when I went home, I just explained the situation to my mother, but I didn't really discuss him with her throughout the summer. That was the first time I really brought him up. But I told her everything that happened, and um, at that point, um, she wanted to, to go up there and deal with it, but I told her basically I, what I told him. <laughs> so I said, you don't have to worry about it. I'm not worried. Let them, give me, let them mail me my last paycheck, and I'll call it a day. So that's that story. The second one, I was about 18 years old. I used to work at a, a, a store chain. It's called, it was called Lecter's Housewares. They were a pretty big housewares chain, um, I guess, in the northeast area. And um, in the store, we used to basically stock the shelves and things like that. And the, we had a, a white manager. It was myself. Uh, one of my best friends um, worked there with me as well. And there were a couple other workers, uh, a white guy and, and another Latino male. And um, I remember there was one day, and it's just funny how ancestors work. And I, I, something in me told me that there was an ancestral involvement in how the day played out. But anyway, there were uh, two Jamaican older Jamaican females who came into the store and they were shopping for stuff and walking around taking their, their time. It's not a really big store, but they were just taking their time and having a discussion amongst themselves about what they wanted to get. And they had very, very heavy, heavy Jamaican accents, but I, I, I knew everything that they were saying. So anyway, uh, the manager uh, calls a meeting downstairs and says to us that he wants us to keep an eye on them because he has this inkling that they're going to steal. So I said, well, you know, I said, I'm, I'm of Caribbean descent myself. And I said, I have relatives who come here and they work to make money because they can make more money here simply because the dollar is worth more. The U.S. dollar is worth more than the Caribbean dollar, especially for Jamaica. I know the same for Trinidad, all the islands and for that matter. So they come here to make money so they can either bring goods back home that they would have to spend a lot of money for um, out of pocket in, in their money in their country, or they bring money home to try and survive for the next year. Um, so I said, I know that they don't want to steal. They're trying to, to pick and choose the things they want that were important for them to take home. And I said, I feel offended that you would ask me to watch these women. So he basically made a demand that we watch them. And I said, I'm not doing it. And I didn't do it. I basically helped them. I asked them if they needed help, stuff like that. And um, then uh, they didn't steal anything. They bought a couple of things and then they left. So later that afternoon, a young white male comes in the store and uh, we asked him if he needs help or whatever. He says, no, he's walking through the store, taking his time as well. But um, he was actually stealing. <laughs> and 
as he attempted to leave the store, the uh, security guard caught him and basically brought him in the store, a blonde hair, blue-eyed, white male with over $700 worth of stolen goods in his bag. So I went to my manager and I said to him, I said, you had a meeting with us about following two older Jamaican females who I know came here on vacation trying to work to take money home and, and make a little difference for their family moving forward for the next 365 days, but yet the person who was caught stealing today was a young white male with over $700 worth of goods in his bag. So I said, you need to explain that. Should we start following white people? And he basically looked red as a beat and was dead silent. I said, okay, thank you, and I just walked away. And there's that story. Thank you very much for taking my call. Wow. That another cliche. We started workplace racism, racist cliches. He's standard operating procedure in terms of the way white people function. And I mean, $700 worth of merchandise. That sounds like this person didn't just have one item. Uh, they were just going around racking up stuff. Uh, that, I mean, that right there lets you know a lot about the power of being a white person, uh, where you can just go around and, and do anything. The rules do not apply. Uh, even reminds me of that segment uh, from the doctor in North Carolina where uh, his six-word statement was 55 miles per hour means you, black boy. Uh, that was his assessment of racism where he always, he says when he drives, he drives uh, 54 miles per hour uh, to make sure that he does not get in trouble with white people. Uh, and that that is the whole system that going right back to being on time uh, on the job. These rules are really just refined ways to do whatever we want to do, really to terrorize black people, whether that's to give you a ticket, put you in jail, fire you from a job, whatever means for us to practice racism, white supremacy. We're not going to apply these rules and penalties uh, in the same manner to whites. Uh, this is set up all designed to go after terrorize target black people. Uh, with that, uh, we did do a little overtime, uh, squeezing in. We had some new callers and wanted to make sure I nabbed, uh, all the folks, um, grand hearing, uh, from everybody. If you have a confusion problem, something wasn't clear, uh, if you can't find something in the archives, if you have a guest suggestion, uh, drop me an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com you can send stuff on facebook and i do you know try to reply people send stuff on facebook or twitter or whatever but uh that my email works much better i can organize i have my folders particularly if you have a guest suggestion uh because it's easier i have my folder there so and sometimes it just it takes a while to get guests uh, it might take a month sometimes it takes even longer to that uh but if you send it to uh the email i'm much more likely to be able to to nab it and even go back to it if it uh if i just forget uh for a moment, it's, it's much easier for me to be able to go back, retrieve things, and make sure I respond. And again, if you did send an email, sent a message, and you didn't get a response, uh, sometimes it does go to spam. Sometimes I don't get it at all. That's happened quite a few times, it seems, of late. Uh, feel free, just send it again. It's not a bother. I do not get offended or upset. Uh, and I will definitely, I make every effort to respond to folks uh, if you have a, a question or a suggestion. If there's no question, then I don't always respond because if it's no question, it's, you know. Uh, but if you have a question, like I said, or if you can't find something, guest suggestion, just drop it until justice at gmail.com. Uh, we, I'm hoping, will have uh, a guest who is outside the states on this week. So obviously that would not be at the normal broadcast time. It would be much earlier. So just check in for the time. If you can listen live, great. If not, you know, it'll be in the archives. Uh, but I think a lot of folks or, or I hope uh, people heard about Sarah Reed. This was a black female in the U.K. Uh, who 
died in custody, much like Sandra Bland and Kimberly Randall King and many of the other victims that we uh, have been talking about for the past, I don't know, year and a half, two years or so. Uh, but this just happened. Uh, Lee Jasper and several other black people have been talking about this case and trying to bring attention to it. She had written to her family that she was being harassed. Uh, she did not feel safe uh, and nothing was done about this. And then she ends up dead. Uh, hopefully we're going to have uh, some of the representatives for the family come on the program just to give us more details about this case. And it does seem like that they are uh, making the global connections to white supremacy and how this this has been happening to black people consistently uh, and increasingly. So hopefully uh, we'll have them on the program this week. And again, that would not be at our normal broadcast time, but you can, it'll be in the archives if you can't listen live. If you can listen live, that's even better. Uh, you can dial in and, and ask questions, but always uh, look forward to having folks on the program who are in different parts of the world. Uh, with that, thanks for tuning in. We will be back tomorrow. Uh, thanks to one of our listeners uh, shared, we have quite a few listeners who tend to, to hook Gus up with uh, different films to check out, uh, and they shared uh, Secret in Their Eyes. Fascinating uh, film. Uh, I might have to even write a word or two about that, even though, you know, I don't think necessarily entertainment is the most important thing, but uh, it was a fascinating uh, view if folks want to check that out. Uh, I think Nicole Kitman, uh, Jennifer, uh, not Jennifer, Julia Roberts, uh, Mr. Uh, Oyelowo uh, that was in 12 Years a Slave and some of the other uh, more recent films. Uh, I think there's pretty much only one prominent uh, black male character, uh, Mr. Uh, Oyelowo. Uh, his fascinating study in white supremacy. You should check that out. Anywho, uh, we will be back this week. Uh, just check uh, Black Talk Radio Network, the Facebook group, uh, for the exact time and date. And again, drop an email if you get confused. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. Uh, again, particularly given what we heard about workplace racism, sobriety would be best under conditions of war. Uh, you do not want to be around intoxicated whites, particularly given what we heard from workplace racism. It is extremely dangerous. I even discourage being in environments where it's going to be a lot of intoxicated non-white people. We already have enough problems in our life. We do not need unnecessary strife. If you're going to be driving even a passenger or pedestrian, you do not want to be under the influence. You never know when those blinking lights that pull up next to you it's going to be Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson, Peter Liang. You never know. You want to be able to make the best possible decisions to protect yourself and the people that you care about. I think Karma talked about that as well. Uh, you just really don't want to take any chances under conditions of war. Uh, that said, I think uh, our male caller who volunteered who wanted to do the prayer, if you are with us, take it away, sir. Thank you. Creator, black people or in a system of racism, white supremacy. Creator, help black people to understand that white people practice racism, white supremacy, in all areas of people activity, economics, education, entertainment, health, labor, law, politics, religion, sex, and war, for the ultimate purpose of white genetic survival and to prevent white genetic annihilation on planet Earth. Creator help black people to systematically transform their behavior for the purpose of justice and to guarantee that no black person is mistreated and to guarantee that
that the black person that needs help the most gets the most creative, constructive help. Creator, thank you for Dr. Francis Chris Welsing in my lifetime. Creator, help black people to resolve and remedy the problems of racism, white supremacy, and to replace it with justice immediately. Ashe. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.